Welcome to the Wall of Soundtrack, a show where we discuss the music and soundtracks behind the very best TV shows and motion pictures. In this episode, we're going to be discussing the music and soundtrack behind the HBO critically acclaimed crime drama television series, True Detective. True Detective is a crime drama television series that has aired on HBO for two seasons from 2014 to present. The show is expected to be renewed for a third season that is slated to air in 2019. The show was created by Nick Pizzolatto and garnered several primetime Emmy Award nominations and one win for Best Director to Carrie Joji Fukunaga for the episode Who Goes There in Season 1. True Detective is considered by many to be an anthology, as in each season takes place in a different location with different cast and characters. Season 1 takes place down in the deep south of Louisiana, where detectives Marty Hart and Rustin Cole, played by Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey, are investigating a murder of a young woman named Dora Lang. Season 2 transitions to the West Coast in the fictional city of Vinci in California, where three detectives and one gangster kingpin are investigating the murder of city finance manager Ben Casper. The cast of Season 2 includes Colin Farrell, who plays Detective Ray Velcoro, Rachel McAdams, who plays Detective Annie Bezzarides, Taylor Kitsch, who plays Detective Paul Woodrow, and Vince Vaughn, who plays gangster kingpin Frank Samon. My returning guest for this discussion is Cy Shackelford. Cy is a columnist for the Entertainment Review and commentary website, Action A Go-Go. You can follow Cy's articles on the website, www.actionagogo.com. You can also follow Cy on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Shack underscore house 83. Here's my discussion with Cy on the music and soundtrack behind the HBO critically acclaimed series, True Detective. Sai, thanks for joining me again. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. Last time we had mad fun doing the Sopranos song analysis and True Detective. That's really my area, so I'm very excited about this today. Awesome. So uh, I read your article about uh, power on the Action Agogo website. That shit looks pretty cool. Uh, the most recent article I posted about great moments in action history where Tommy runs over the Puerto Rican drug dealer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was, <laughs> that was one of their most dark-humored moments on the show. And even though the show is already inherently violent in the first place, taking place in New York City's drug trade and whatnot, that one just struck me as particularly funny, like something that you see in a Tarantino movie, the way it's juxtaposed with the upbeat song in the background of Easy by the Commodores. It's yeah. like, okay, this is just, this is too good not to post. Yeah, and I noticed that uh, Joseph Secor is in it, and he was also in, speaking of that, in True Detective season one, he plays Ginger. Yes, he does in two episodes. He's getting a lot of roles, I noticed. Like, I mean, he was in, um, I think that, what, Jack Reacher, he, he played the he, suspect. The assassin was in the bed. I think yeah. It was, yeah. Yeah. He, he was in Shutter Island, Law & Order SVU, a few episodes there. He's a, he's a good character actor. And f seeing the transition that he went from, from Ginger and then a few months later to Tommy on season one of Power, which was also which also debuted in 2014, Seen him in power, I was surprised to see that's ginger. Yeah, like, holy I mean, shit. I it was crazy because they the makeup and like 
the way they did his, I mean, he's bald in the show, but mm. the way they did his, uh, like his goatee and his like beard, that long yeah, red that, beard. Yeah. They really, I didn't even notice it was him seeing him and know? the, and the tattoos too. And the accent that he used, the Texas accent. Yeah. And he plays the part just really well. He plays that hardcore biker, you know, he does. He's convincing and standing toe to toe with McConaughey like that. Who's already a towering actor in his own right. Yeah, that's quite a feat. Yeah, I'm excited to see him. I'm sure he'll be in a, a, lot, a lot of other great movies and shows. Now, this is a Stars show? or Yeah, it's on Stars. yeah. It's been on since 2014. And season five, it airs on July 1st. Okay, cool, cool. So, uh, have you seen Deadpool? Did you see the new Deadpool movie? Yes, I did. I saw it last Sunday. I liked it. It's definitely, it's definitely as over the top as the first one. No, more over the top than the first one, really. And it proves that Ryan Reynolds is just an ultimate troll. <laughs> on everybody and including himself as you'll see in some of the um some of the post credit scenes. Now, he he was also in the first one. I didn't get to see that that movie either. I've been just not been able to get to the theaters at all unfortunately, but I've heard really good things from my friends as you as well and I uh, hear it's really funny. It is. I mean, when I saw the trailer for the first Deadpool film, they are. It was already indicative that it'd be rated R based on the jokes that they say. When they look at Deadpool's face without the mask, his friend Weasel just deadpans to him that he looks like a testicle with teeth. And they show that in the trailer. <laughs> it's like, okay, this is definitely going to be rated R. They, they wouldn't show this in no Disney, Disney Marvel movie. But even then, the trailer did not do the movie justice. The movie should have been NC-17, all the explicit shit they had in there. And all, the, and all the barbs they had towards Fox Studios who distributed it, it's like they probably just told the director, do whatever you want to and see what sticks. Yeah. So is there a lot of violence in the movie? Or? Plenty. Plenty of violence. Over-the-top violence. Yeah, it's, it's an action comedy comic book movie. It's like, a, it's like what you get when you put all that into a blender and make it self-aware. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I think that's like a little odd, though, for Marvel movies to be – I mean, because – when I, the mo like X Men, I wouldn't really think X Men's like a real violent movie, but I think Deadpool's Dead Deadpool is kind of straying from that, you know, PG thirteen maybe type of rating. Yeah, they that's what they were aiming for. Yeah, and it, and it was a massive success too. So before like last year, no, two years ago when the first Deadpool film came out, and as much of a critical and commercial success as it was, I was thinking to myself, okay, Disney has to step their game up. They got to do a rated R, a rated R Marvel Studios film at this point. Not save it for Netflix like they've been doing with Luke Cage, Daredevil, and The Punisher, all of which are rated R and better suited for for Netflix. But given the success of Deadpool, Marvel, Marvel Studios, and Disney were gonna have to compete, and that, which is why I think they've been trying to buy those properties back from Fox Studios, even though Comcast they they're currently the higher bidder. Yeah, I think it was a, definitely a smart move, and and it seems like the the Marvel movies are just making. I'm sorry, not the the Marvel movies yet. The yeah. Marvel movies are making um, just tons of money. Dude, what's it called? Avengers: Infinity War. They their opening weekend they made Justice League, Justice League's entire gross, entire gross in just those three days. Right. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, and DC DC Comics they can't they got nothing to really compete with. I mean, they can't compete with Marvel. Marvel just towers over them. And they tried to emulate Marvel's formula, like how they how they led up to Avengers in 2012. DC tried to poorly mimic that formula by leading up to Justice League, and that got a very lukewarm fanfare, if that. Yeah. Uh, do you feel the acting is is on par with, you know, normal 
you know, cop drama or just regular movies. The I'm, In a Marvel Studios movie or just... Yeah, just a regular movie. I mean, do you feel like the acting or the script's dialogue are, aren't as good as just like some of the other movies because they're, they're kind of more action-based? Uh, like, Well, with the exception of, as far as DC comic movies goes, the only one that, that can actually be on par with like a, a drama, a serious drama, would be the, the Christopher Nolan Batman movies. Okay. Yeah, when I looked at those, those, those felt more like, more like epic crime dramas as opposed to an actual superhero film. Okay. Okay. Yeah, Marvel Studios, they got some that are just like that as well too. Black Panther, it was like that. Uh Avengers Infinity War, they made it work with all those characters in there. Like they had every character, like at least a dozen characters, major characters. Gotcha. Yeah, that's another one I need to see too. I've heard really good, really really good reviews about that as well. So, uh we're going to jump into True Detective here. So, True Detective is essentially for the listeners um, a cop drama. It was developed and uh, debuted, I think, around 2015. 2014. 2014. Uh, my apologies. And uh, stars Matthew McConaughey uh, and Woody Harrelson as two detectives investigating a murder in southern Louisiana. So it also stars uh, Michelle uh, Michelle Monaghan. Um, Michael Potts. And Michael Potts from The Wire as well. He was... Uh, Brother Muzone. Brother Muzone, yeah. Another great character. And... Uh, Tori Kittles. Yeah. Alexandra Daddario, too. She plays the love interest. The mistress. Or the... The, 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 the mistress. The mistress. Of, of Woody Harrelson's character. Yeah. yeah. So we'll get into that more. But um, yeah, let's talk about the opening uh, title sequence for... Uh, season one. Season one, which is, I think, a great song. It's done by... The Handsome Family. It's called Far From Any Room. And it's just, it really gives you that Southern vibe when I hear it. You know, like creepy kind of like folk Southern vibe. Southern Gothic, yeah. Yeah. And it it works perfectly, I feel like, with the, the imagery. Yeah, the imagery has a lot of religious undertones to it. And it also foreshadows what we're going to be, what we saw later on the show with the antlers and um, all the other, the Pentecostal revival groups and whatnot. Right, right. The uh, the song I think was was picked perfectly by uh, T Bone Burnett. He uh, he does the he's the music supervisor for the show, um, and uh, just uh, more it does more great picks as well. So, um, I, and I think the the lyrics you know also they they also match up perfectly with the, with the song as well. You know, her looming shadow grows hidden in the, in the branches. branches of the po- poison creoso. Uh, she twines her spines up slowly towards the boiling sun. It kind of Yo. reminds me of that scene where they find the body. When they find Dorling's body. When, when they find Dorling's body. Oh, the in the first, opening, first yeah. episode, yeah. Yeah. Where she sprayed out after the cane fields were burned and she's right in front of the tree in like a prayer position naked with the crown, with the antler crown on her head. Yep. And then she has that, that swirl tattoo on the back. Oh, yes. Yeah, uh, like on her back. Yeah, the Carcosa swirling tattoo, yeah. Yeah. Um. But I, I love the this the um, filming with cinematography too of that scene. Like it's just it's beautifully filmed and it's actually shot on film instead of digital. So it gives you that kind of uh, grainy old kind of classic look to it. And plus, like just like the movie Sicario and the cinematography, how that was done as well. They made they made the country the um they made the landscape as much a part of the narrative as the actual human characters themselves. Yeah. I agree with you, and I think that's what I like about season one. 
more yes. than season two because I feel like season two takes place in, in California. California, and I feel like a lot of shows and, and movies, have they've already done that. California, New York, Chicago, all the major areas, and hardly any of them take place in Louisiana. Right, so I think it was just a perfect choice by, uh, by Nick Pizzolatto. And taking and using it to take place in other places other than like Baton Rouge or New Orleans, they went to the Marshlands and like did the aerial shots there, and those were very nice. Yeah, and I forgot to mention actually, Nick Nick Pizzolatto is uh, Pizzolatto is the creator of the show and a head writer as well. Too. And head writer, he also actually appears in the show. He's one of the bartenders in season I, in episode four. Yeah, yeah, in episode four, he wears that crazy shirt. Kiss, Kiss me, me, I'm Kiss. an ass. I'm an asshole. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's 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 crazy because uh, the only way I knew that he was uh, in the show was because of the behind the scenes. Uh, features after after the show was airing, they would play a behind the scenes, and Nick would talk about each scene. And that was the first one I saw actually for, for episode four, where they actually had him in the had him in like the Hitchcock appearance as the bartender. It's like that was you. You're Nick Pizzolatto. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> he did a good job though. Yeah, yeah he, did, he did, did a good job acting. So uh, I have to give him that. <clears throat> so we'll, I think we're going to go to our next song here. It is in episode one, the long, bright, dark. That was a hell of a title. I love that title for the episode. Yeah. And um, it's done by a band called the Black Angels, uh, Young Men Dead. It's the last uh, it's the last song that's played uh, at the ending credits. Right. So they're they're um, the two detectives, Gilbo Gilbo and uh, Papania are interviewing Rust, who's played by Matthew McConaughey. And um, it ends, I think, with a with a very kind of crucial line. He's like. We'll start, start asking the right, right fucking questions. questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then that song cues up and it's just like this kind of badass, like outlaw track. And um, it's done by a band called the, the, the Black Angels, which is from Texas, which I thought was an interesting choice because Russ, Russ Cole, his his character is from Texas. So uh, and, and there's a lot of other bands. We'll talk about this later on. But there's a lot of other uh, selections by T-Bone Burnett uh, of bands that are from Texas. And the song fit the scene good, I mean. After he tells him to start asking the right fucking questions, he takes a very long drag of his cigarette as we hear the guitar chords for the song kick in. Yep. And he's like he's like he's looking at them with contempt after he takes the drag. Like Yeah, stop wasting my time. time. Yeah. Yeah, let's get let's cut to the chase. So yeah, that's that was a another great another great pick. Um And like you said also, yeah, because they're from Texas and he's from Texas and we later see his his undercover Texas background in in the backyard of Tech East Texas. Yeah, that makes it even more fitting. We find out that he's uh, you know a narco. He's kind of an outlaw and has been been kind of rolling like that for a few years. Actually, more than he probably should have been. Yeah, yeah, undercover for four years instead of eleven months. Yeah, yeah you just kind of turn into another person, right? Pretty yeah. pretty much, yeah. Yeah. So, so our next song here in episode two, uh, episode two is titled "Seeing Things," and this is a a uh, group called the uh, Macintosh County Shouters. I'd like to point out just uh, what's it called? The Sign of the Judgment. I'm, so, I'm sorry, that, which, is the, which is the title of the song. I'm sorry sign to cut the, you off. No, that's okay. But the Sign of the Judgment has been used frequently throughout the season one by many different artists as well. Like different gospel interpretations of it and being used in very crucial scenes. So you're saying that this actually was was used in season one. I'm sorry. Um, season one. Different parts of season one in different ep- episodes. Yeah. They just kind of maybe faded in or or faded in or used a different artist for it. Okay, gotcha, yeah. gotcha. So this song called "Sign of the Judgment" it's done by uh, Mac- the Macintosh County Shouters. 
I, I really like it because it's, um, again, gives you that kind of Southern Pentecostal feel. Uh, you hear the song, it's cued in when uh, there's an aerial shot, essentially, of the, um, what's that car? Is it, it's like a Caprice or? Well, Marty's car. That Marty's car, yeah. That, so uh, the murder takes, uh, takes place in 1995 of Dora Lang. So they're driving older cars. I like how they make that kind of transition as well with the set. I do it too. The the, the um, what do they call it? It's not an anachronism. It's the, the everything everything as it is as it should be considering the time period. Right, right. So, well, you know, going back to the scene, it's an aerial shot of their their cop car, and they're they're going to uh, Bunny Ranch, I believe it is, right? A hillbilly or, bunny ranch. A hillbilly bunny ranch. So, <laughs> so, uh, but you had no, no, no. actually no, no, no. They they weren't going there. They weren't going there. Or they yeah. were going to. Um, oh man, I goofed here. Uh, the mechanics. Oh, the mechanics, right. They're going to, they're going to go. Yep. They're going to go visit the mechanics. So they're essentially all trying to find more leads right. for this, for this murder. And they're trying to find out where this bunny ranch is. So, um, rust walks in to the, to the garage and it is asking the mechanics if they know where this bunny ranch is, the mechanics are lying of course, cause they, they know that he's a cop and he may arrest them yeah. if you know, they're, they're going to a bunny ranch and essentially participating in illegal activities. So, uh, you know, Marty is narrating the scene. He's doing a voiceover and he's saying Rust had a knack for uh, reading weakness. Yeah, reading weakness. So I think that's how this song kind of ties in. And, uh, you know, Rust is able to essentially uh, do his analysis, figure out that they're lying. And he, come, you know, he walks out to the car, tells Marty, goes, hold on, I'll be right back. He takes and he his comes jacket in, off, yeah. He goes in and then just essentially beats the crap out of him and forces them to tell him where that bunny ranch is. And he comes out all calm and gives Marty the directions, and Marty's looking like, okay. Yeah, yeah he's like, what did he really do in there, right? Like, he literally beat it out of him. Yeah, he beat it out of him. But, yeah, the song fits perfectly with, with the, the sequence and uh, the lyrics, too. And plus, it also is more foreshadowing to the loose horse in the valley, like we see in the... Um, Either this episode or the one before, when Marty and Russ go to interview Dorling's mother, and Russ is looking around at all the belongings of the mother, and they see a picture of a young Dora, and in the back you see a bunch of men on horse horseback with animal masks, which we later find out is part of the whole part of the whole Carcosa conspiracy. Really? Okay. Yeah. I thought there were actually pictures of of like. Uh... I want to say it looked Cl like Klansmen. Yeah, Klansmen. Yeah, yeah. That's too. what it looked. That's what I thought they were too. Yeah, but then, oh, okay. But then we see the symmetry later on in another scene with Marty's daughters when they're playing with those figurines, and they have like a dead girl and five men around them, and we see that exact same symmetry later on in the murder of Marie Fontaine doing that old VHS tape in episode seven. Whoa, good catch. Yeah, I didn't. I did not notice that. And the other thing, one more thing, the sign in the fig tree. The twig sculptures. That's what I, that had me thinking of. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, those like figurines mm -hmm. and um, devil catchers. Considering this, the the whole song "Sign of the Judgment" is about religion. Really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's a great catch, and I also think that those figurines are really creepy, man. Like when I remember seeing them in a show, I'm like, what? What is this? Like, yeah, I've never man. seen anything like that before. But uh, I guess um, the the coroner was making. Um, I think he make he made references to like, it may have been associated to voodoo or that they needed to talk, talk to, to an anthropologist. An anthropologist. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, definitely a good catch and definitely an interesting scene there. 
an interesting music choice as well. Oh yeah, definitely. So again, we're we're gonna we're gonna stick to episode two here. Another song uh, by Reverend C. Johnson called "You Better Run to the City of the Re- Refuge." This is what I was getting mixed up with. Uh, the one you this, better run, better run, yep, better. That one, yep, yeah. that that's it, uh, and that's actually when the sequence of where they're driving to mm-hmm. the bunny ranch. They're pulling up and they see all the all the young girls just hoisted around there. Yeah, yeah, very and very young from when they when the way they look and how they're dressed. Yeah, it's like it's totally sketchy. You know, yeah. you're like, oh man, this is not good. Like this is, and you know, you know that you know that Hart's gonna freak out because he's got you know daughters. He's and, got daughters, even though what's it called? He. <sighs> It kind of highlights Marty's own hypocrisy, given what we later learn about him in the episode as well. Yeah, and um, there's that scene where he where he speaks with the uh, the owner of the bunny ranch, the madam, yeah, the, the madam, and she kind of socks it to him. She does, yeah. He's like, you got a problem with it because you don't own it. Yeah, yeah. Which I was thought was crucial. I was like, that is some great writing, great dialogue that written by Nick Pizzolatto there. It is really it just shows that he's not not going along with the whole patriarchal view of it, even though Marty. Marty's character is pretty patriarchal, but the woman, she's a woman. The madam is a woman herself, so she she can honestly tell him flat out that woman's body is her own fucking business. Yeah, seriously. Um, and uh, it just, but it does kind of go run contrary to, to like societal, like you should be, you know, uh, kind of, you know, um, good, clean, and wholesome. Good, clean, yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, back to that song. Also, I think some interesting points about. Um, the lyrics, you know, you better run, you better run. Dora Lang was essentially running out from her from her uncle, I guess, and she had family problems. Uh, we hear we learn this from the from the madam. Yeah, and from the mother as well too. The mother intimated that the father maybe maybe been sexually abusive. When Marty and Russ interviewed Dora's mother, they asked her, "Was the father anywhere around?" And she responds, "Why wouldn't the father bathe his own child?" And then Russ and Marty share a look. Yeah, they're kind of like, what the f? What the f does that mean? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it implies sexual abuse, but like, what to what extent and what kind? I couldn't discern. Yeah, you just you kind of got a hint of that that may yeah, have been yeah. happening. Yeah, and I guess you know when you get to the bunny ranch, you're like, all right, that I can kind of believe that this 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 could happen because there's just so much sketchy stuff going on. You yeah. Know? So um, yeah, but when when you look at the lyrics of that song by by Reverend C. Johnson. Um, it says, well, you better run, you better run to the city of Ninveja. I think that's how you say it. Yeah. Um, but again, I think it kind of fits in perfectly with the plot of Dora Lang kind of trying to run and find refuge at that, at that bunny ranch. Not just there anywhere too, like with the, uh, the tall man with scars, him too. Yeah. And, um, some interesting things that I noticed here, like you, you end up meeting the character Beth who works uh, who works at the Bunny Ranch. Played by Lily Simmons. Yeah. Fat ass. <laughs> and um, so there's a scene where Marty is in the uh, is in the trailer and then Russ ba- walks back in uh, after questioning Beth and then Marty ends up giving Beth some money saying, you know, do, do something, something different. different. Try to get out of here. And, uh, you know, find an actually legitimate career and, and, and kind of get on the right track. Right. So when they're walking out, Russ goes, was that a down payment? And, <laughs> and it actually was later on. Later on, it turned out. out to be, yeah, 2002 when he runs into her when she's working at a, at a, at a cell phone store. Yeah, and they actually end up hooking up. And, yeah. Yeah, it, it was kind of weird. a down payment, yeah. But it was, though. Yeah, it was a down payment. I just thought that was so funny. It is. Um, 
So yeah, yeah. There's always some, that's what I love about this season is, and I don't think you see it in season two is the kind of the, the, the humor between and, and the dialogue between uh, Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey. You don't really see that much of they try. They try in season try. two with with a uh, Colin Farrell and Rachel McAdams and whatnot, but it doesn't have the same chemistry that McConaughey and Harrelson have with each other. Yeah. Yeah. So. <clears throat> All right. So next uh, next song here. We're still on. Uh, we're still on episode. Uh, two. Episode two. And also before you get started, after we do this one, I found a few other ones that are pertinent as well too. Okay. It's including pertinent scenes to Marty's uh, affair. Okay. Okay. Great. Um, so this next uh, song is by Cuff the Duke. He is a this uh, this band is actually a Canadian alt country band, which I think is is interesting <laughs> in its own right. I guess it's because I I live in the United States and I think that well you know country only exists here. You know, being naive, nah. uh, it also exists in other places, obviously. But um, hell, even places in our country that we wouldn't think even that country music exists, like New England and New York. Yeah, so uh, I think this is another um, I, another interesting pick, but also another great song. Because this song really stood out to me when I was watching the show. Um, it just has really good, uh, you know, really good lyrics, and uh, it's just kind of very ear catching. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you, we we hear this song when Rust and uh, Rust and Marty are driving past that bridge. They're looking for. The, the church. church and um as they speed off you kind of the song uh f- fades in and um it also we also hear it when uh russ starts hallucinating so we 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 see we see russ start to hallucinate Can he we, gets out of the car is that it was it a hallucination though or just chance i mean I, I don't i think it they left it ambiguous they definitely did i think it was just a weird a weird uh coincidence kind of, yeah because the way the birds flew and that's it looked like the swirl like the swirl of the tattoo like yeah the, the carcosa, carcosa tattoo yeah i i was like there's no way that the birds would like be able to do that i think it was done purposely because he was hallucinating yeah that's just my kind of take on it but you could be right yeah <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah i think it's a it's a great song the lyrics uh it's up to you lord it's up to you but i still have time to choose and then there's there's other uh there's another line where it says my faith is weary my soul is too we know uh in this show in this season that rust really isn't a uh believer in god no he's not even though he has a crucifix in his apartment which he says is just like a form of meditation but he clearly even though he he's an atheist he still takes into account takes into account a lot of their principles right and um so I think this song really is paired up to to match, you know, Rust character essentially. And like, he may, and he may not believe in Christianity, but what's it called? Like as we later see him in 2012, he has subscribed to the whole Carcosa belief that time is a flat circle, or or rather Frederick Nietzsche really. But Carcosa, the, his encounter with Reginald Ledoux, that's what made him believe in that, I guess, even more so. Yeah. So and then after that, they end up finding the um, the mural, mural on in the church that's burned out, and it's pretty much resembles the initial murder scene that they come across yeah. where Dora Lang, yeah, a, uh, like a figure of a woman with like a antler crown on her head, yeah, and, yeah, and, and and some black stars in there as well too, which we later learn 
are part of the whole Carcosa Yellow King mythology. Be, and, and that's it's interesting you mentioned that too because in episode I believe it's five, Reginald Reggie Ledoux mentions black stars like when he when he's you know handcuffed and 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 uh, Rust has him kind of uh, handcuffed and he has a gun pointed towards him. He's he's Mentioned saying frequently. black stars. Yeah. Black stars rise. Yeah. He yeah. mentions it frequently. And it, and, it be, and it becomes visual at the end of that at the end of that episode too, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that particular scene when we discuss a song using that backdrop later on. Yep. So uh moving on to the next uh I'm sorry, I, I cut you off there. What's it called? The um we just finished Cuff the Duke, If I Live, If I Die. Yep. Okay, there were two other songs in episode two that I noticed as well um, by a blues musician named John Lee Hooker. He, Two of his songs were playing at the cop bar where Marty's telling the story about... I think I know. Yeah, whiskey. It's something, something called whiskey. One, one, one scotch, beer. one beer, one whiskey. Yeah, yeah. That song's playing first when they're all just drinking and Marty's talking about a supposed sexual conquest he had from a college co-ed or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And then what's it called? As he calls, he calls his mistress later, a few minutes later, Lisa Tragnetti, who's a stenographer at the courthouse. And, yeah. we, and we saw her in the first episode and it was clearly implied that they were having an affair. Yeah. But this episode, episode two... Episode two confirms it, and when he calls her on the payphone, asks if he can come over, and says he got a surprise for her, the song playing in the background, also by John Lee Miller, John Lee Hooker, is called um, "Unfriendly Woman." Okay. And that, and the lyrics, one of the lyrics in there says, "You better change now, baby, before it's too late." And I could think it's could, I think it's prophetic, prophetic for either Lisa herself, being a mistress prophetic about marty and his and how he has to change before things get worse for him right or maybe even prophetic for maggie about how she has to step her game up after she gets hurt by her husband's affairs yeah or maybe maybe it even identifies the fact that there's a problem with their marriage that either maggie or marty needs to fix right right so yeah good catch John Lee Hooker too, always a great i think he's a famous uh famous blues he's a blues musician yeah he passed away i think yeah, and, and it's interesting because there's another blues musician that uh, T Bone T Bone Burnett picks um, in in this season, I believe. Or actually, it's in season two. Uh, it's the scene where, uh, where Velcro gets shot. Velcro gets shot. We'll get to that later. But yeah. um, man, he T Bone Burnett uh, he he has uh, done a lot of great work, and I failed to mention that he actually worked uh, worked on uh, Brother Where Art Thou. Where Art Thou? Ah, brother, I can't speak. Brother, where where art thou? The Coen Brothers joint. The Coen's the the Coen Brothers movie. Oh yeah, and he actually won five Grammys for that. He won five. Gra- Good for him. Yeah, yeah. So I think he's really got a lot of skill. Uh, a lot of skill, a lot of talent. So he does have a good talent for picking music and making it as well. Definitely. Yep. yep. So, um, so that in in the next episode, the locked room, oh, which episode. is another great episode. Um, we we have this song here uh, by Dwight Dwight Yoakam. It's called "I'm a One Woman Woman." Ah, I'm a One, one Woman, woman Man. man. <laughs> Can't talk today. I swear. <laughs> um, another great choice, kind of illuminates the infidelity from 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 Marty, and uh, the, I guess to to give a little bit of more context to the scene is him and Rust. Uh, they go on a double, double date. date. Yeah, Marty's there with Maggie, of course, and Maggie's bring brings a friend, Jennifer. I'm guessing she's also a nurse, I guess. And Jennifer at first is like, what's it called? She's kind of skeptical about who Marty might be setting her up with this time because the last person that she got set up with by him 
fellow cop Steve Geraci threw up in her lap. Who's actually a character we see in the show. It's not just one not of just his friends name. that we, we don't see. It's an actual person. He uh, appears in three episodes played by Michael Harney. Yeah, and it's funny because him and uh, him and Russ just have a really just hate each other. They do, yeah. <laughs> and there's some real great scenes, and Russ ends up getting back at him. But uh, yeah, but um, yeah. So this scene, they're in a I cowboy it's, bar. It's a it's a um, line dancing bar. Yeah, it is. And uh, so Marty runs into Alex Daddario, who is Lisa. Lisa, his mistress. Yeah. Yep. And she's on a date of her own. Yeah, so Rust, um, sorry, Marty. Not Rust, Marty gets real angry and starts drinking at the bar and ends up getting into a whole big fight. You know? Not at the bar, no. Not at the bar, but at the at her at her apartment. Yeah, because at the bar, after he sees her there, after he sees her at the bar with somebody else, he gets crazy jealous, and he he uses he uses an empty pitcher as an excuse to go up to the bar to intercept her. Yeah, but it's like. What are you so mad about, dude? He's mad about that she's out with someone else. And it's like the the madam at the Hillbilly Bunny Ranch told him, like, you're just mad because you can't control it. Yeah, yeah. yeah Marty, we you know, we start to learn that Marty's personality, he's kind of a control freak. Kind of control freak, yeah, especially when it comes to the women in his life. Yeah, and I think he just felt jealous that 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 this woman was going out and and you know wanted a serious relationship and didn't want just a fling with Marty. Exactly, yeah. And plus and the other thing is as good looking as Alex Dario is, it's like you got Michelle Monahan at home too. It's like you, you a man's going to be a man, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. And I I really on another note, I really like her performance, Michelle Monahan's performance. I think Me she's too. she's it's kind of the sleeper, you know, like performance of of the of the first season she and um how she how she her character transformed yeah yeah you she just ends up having a bigger role in the whole plot um especially when she starts talking to uh Papania and and and, and Gil Rolaire at, at that later. point in 2012 we just learned just how much more she's just as skilled as her husband and Russ is when it comes to police interrogation yeah so uh but yeah this song uh the title of it, I'm a one woman man pretty matches up pretty self-explanatory that uh, you know, Marty is not a one woman man at all. No, he's not. Russ doesn't care for relationships, even though the girl Jennifer was clearly kind of interested in him. Yeah. And from the questions that she asked about synesthesia, when she asked one question that she asked, she was like, "It's like it feels so twice something as good. feels good does it feel twice as good?" Yeah. And then and then Maggie looks at her like with her eyebrows slightly cocked up, like you're thinking about sex. Yeah. There's a lot of like sexual tension kind of yeah. building between that conversation between the, the, her nurse friend, Jennifer and, yeah. and, and Russ. So yeah, I definitely picked up on that as well. And I think there's a lot of irony in that scene and picking that song. Uh, but um, yeah, it was, it was chosen deliberately. Yeah. Yeah. Deli- I think it was pretty deliberate there. And then we go to our transition to our next episode for who goes there. Um, we're going with uh, uh, Lucinda. Lucinda Win- Williams, Are You Alright? I've heard this track before. Uh, it was actually played in uh, The Sopranos. Oh, yeah, it was actually. It was the episode where Tony goes to Las Vegas after Chris, uh, Chris Moltisante dies. Season five or? It's season six. Six, okay. Yeah, so they play that song, Are You Alright? Uh, when Tony is driving to um, the casino. Right. So uh, this is a great song. Obviously, it's been used in different shows, but... Um, but it, it fits more with Russ's character, especially since he's going to have to 
portray a character that he long that he portrayed for four years straight, like as part of his undercover assignment. Yeah, and, and it expresses his duality. Like, and plus we know Russ is a fragile person to begin with. It's like, yeah, he's been in a mental in a mental hospital. It, his wife divorced him after their child was killed. Yeah, and how he was raised too by his father in the coldness of Alaska without a mother. Yeah, yeah, and his dad was a Vietnam vet, a survivalist. And, yeah, yeah, it's. It's uh, definitely a good pick. Um, I think it really shows him transforming, like his his character. You see, and you don't really know about it when you're kind of watching the episode sequentially at that point. Um, and then you you kind of see him transform, and you're like, "Wow, dude, are you are you actually all right?" I mean, because it looks like he's just like he starts to drink more, and he yeah, when he wasn't when he wasn't even trying to drink earlier in the episodes either. It's like it's only when he's in his apartment and opens that chest up that he actually starts drinking and pulls out the bottle of Jameson. Yeah, and then it has all those guns and grenades in there yeah, and, which, like, assault rifles. Which, and... which kind of helped bring Marty. After Marty's wife found out about his affair with Lisa and then Marty goes to stay with Rust, that kind of brings him out of his funk a little bit because when he sees the guns, like, holy shit. Yeah, it's like, who was this shows? guy? Yeah. He's really interested, even trying on his old leather jacket and whatnot. And it's got bullet holes in it. Bullet holes, Yeah. <laughs> and then you see and then he shows the actual like the actual wounds. wounds yeah. yeah you find out that he killed all these like drug dealers at like a, the port of houston yeah, yeah he did yeah he was he and, and his preparation for getting into that role too as a lucinda williams song is playing it's like a, it's like what a method actor would do what i imagine a method actor would do like actually physically transform themselves just to get in the character yeah, then they also play that song when he's walking. Like the song continues to, to kind of play when he walks into the evidence room. Oh yeah, he's like, man, they be- I would they should have a better system, system for this. this. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes in and actually gets the coke. cocaine and replace it with the baby powder. Yeah, okay. yeah. I'm like, they don't got no cameras there, and they're state police. Even for '95, that that's surprising. And even like for the behind the scenes, Nick Nick Puzzolato is is talking about this, and he's like, "If you thought it was that easy, he's like, back then it was you know, <laughs> to get the, to to just walk in and just get drugs, you know." Just like in what's it called in New York, the New York Police Department back in the late '60s, early '70s, what's it called? They show that in American Gangster as well too. How Josh Brolin's character with the Italian cop with a long leather trench coat, he just knocks in the interrogation room, I mean the evidence room door, or whatever. Yeah, and the cop is running. It's like Detective Trupo, sign here. Yeah, he gives him what he needs. He doesn't even give his real name, and that's it. Yeah, it's like the Serpico days. You know? Yeah, like it's just you know crazy uh, corruption. But there's more. There's more in this episode, though. Um, they in the strip club scene, the song that's playing. Cyper, Ill- is it Cypress Hill or no? Nah, that's Boogie Down Productions. Okay, KRS One. Okay, yeah, Illegal Business. That's what the name. That's the name of the song. And that's where we see Nick. Puzz a lot, right? Right, as a bartender. The bar. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. then Marty's like, "Hey, man, do I have to pull, pull my, my badge?" badge. <laughs> leaves him a dollar. Leaves him a few dollars. Then yeah. just grabs a grabs a black Johnny Walker label. <laughs> yeah, that part cracks me up every time because he's just like, "Dude, I'm a cop. Like, why are you not? Why are you not listening to me? Like, like why do you make me say this shit? <laughs> yeah, why do you make me say this shit? Yeah, we run clean here." Yeah, it's like, all right. He's like, what do you, what do you, what do you think is going to happen? He's like, when I shut you down for a grand jury inquiry in six months. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, great acting. Um, and then you know, I got to put my t- tip my hat off to Nick for uh, for good acting there too as well. And the um and, and the other part about that episode, the the nine minute tracking shot, cur- courtesy of the the one director for season one, Carrie Joji Fukunaga, yeah. who directed every episode in season one. That that's 
Episode 4, that's the episode that really sold me on True Detective. After that tracking shot was done where they did yeah. all that shit in one take, the robbery, the housing projects, and Russ escape with Ginger, it's like, oh, I, man. I had to stand up and clap for that. That was brilliant. And I think he's really going to be a rising star as a director. He's doing a lot of great films. I think he did one with um, Idris Elba about a, I want to say it was a... Uh, military rebel um, I'm blanking on the name of the film I don't know if you know what I'm talking about he plays like I'm drawing a blank but it, um, it was a Netflix film oh. and it got a lot of praise um, I'll, I'm blanking on it right now if I had a computer I could look it up and <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think he's going to be a director that's you're going to see a lot more from him and uh, a lot of great things and his directing in season one that gave a consistency all throughout the whole story really he knew what he wanted to do even though i he probably had some pushback from pizzolato yeah a lot of the time which is probably why he wasn't back in season two and there were rumors of that you know transitioning into season two that they were um not getting along and maybe it was why he just took an executive producer role instead of a a, a A directorial role. role Um, which I kind of wish he had taken because maybe season two would have been a little bit different. It would have been a little bit different. I wouldn't have to go back. I wouldn't have to go back and watch it a second time just to figure out how to connect all the dots together. Yeah. Even though they do connect and some people still won't get it themselves. But me personally, it's just, I get it. It wasn't as good as season one, but that was a given going in there. But he tried something different, though, that I have to give him some praise for. You know, he didn't just repeat the same formula mm-hmm. as season one. He tried something different. He brought more characters in. He brought Vince Vaughn's character, you know, Rachel McAdams um, and Taylor Taylor uh, Kitsch. Taylor Kitsch and Colin Farrell, yeah. I think it was just too many, though. I think you couldn't really, like, invest as much as you wanted to. Or maybe you didn't. Maybe people just don't have enough attention span for to, or, or to, both or yeah so i think that was kind of that kind of hurt season two but so we go to episode five here who goes there um actually no i think that is that is not that the is the right a, title that it's the, the secret, secret fate, fate of, of all, all life, life. Uh, my apologies on that but we hear the song by chris uh christopherson called casey's last ride i really like this song it's pretty dark. Dark. it's pretty dark yeah, yeah. I like and 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 i i love this episode I love episode five um, because of of so many great scenes. Uh, We find out, you know, plot wise, we find out that Reggie Ledoux uh, and D wall were, were involved. We're involved. Yes. We get a little bit of closure there. There's some action. They actually end up finding the kids and rescuing them from that house in the um, house in the woods yeah yeah and this is where joseph sakura his character um ginger yeah. ginger so so ginger and and uh rust are sitting in the bar with the chris christopherson song playing in the background yeah it's so creepy too like it's it, it, and even the lyrics to the uh you know following their footsteps through the neon darkened quarters we're in this bar it's lit the same way yeah it's just, it, I think it just matches up perfectly. And especially considering the conversation that they have with Duwall Ledoux when he first, when he enters the bar. Yeah. And how they, how they, Russ tries to make his fake pitch to him for like new, for like more Christie, a better deal for crystal meth or whatever. Yeah. And then Duwall refuses, but then he, it's like he's analyzing Rust, like, like a cursory inspection, tells him, I can see your soul. Through the walls, through the shadows of your eyes. Yeah. It's corrosive, like acid. You got a demon in you. There's a shadow on you, son. A shadow. There's a shadow. There's a shadow in your son. Like he's going to like 
If he sees him again, he's going to kill him. He like, basically said, he's like, Ginger, you call me again. I'm setting miles on you. Yeah. As for you, I see you again. I'm putting you down. There's a shadow on you, son. The the part that kind of creep the line that creeps me out of dialogue there from D Walls where he's like, and I don't like your face. It makes me want to do, do things, things to it. it. Yeah. I was like, what? what? I was like, who says something like that? This guy is crazy. Yeah, and we later learned that he was he was from his cousin Jimmy Ledoux in episode seven. That he's like the few times I did see the wall, he was always saying kooky stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, he's like those crazy shits. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so my pop didn't like him none. They weren't yeah. even white enough to be white trash. <laughs> God damn. Yeah, it's like man, you guys really didn't like that, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I think it's another great. Uh, great choice by by T uh, Bone Burnett, and even the title Casey's Last Ride. You, I mean, Ginger's a biker, right. so it, it, it the, there's that just I feel like fits perfectly with that scene, and you know Ginger being there, and um, great acting by Jason. Uh, sorry, um, what's it? Jason, uh, what's his name? Joseph jo- Joseph Sakura. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Duwall, he has a he was born here, but he's Icelandic though. He has a Olaf something, I forget. Yeah. Um, but great, great performances there as well. Um, so we moved to, actually, still, we moved to still, the next song here. We're, we're still on episode five, The Secret Fate of All Life. This scene was fantastic. I love this song. Bos- by Bosnian Rainbows. It's called Eli. It's at the end of the episode. So I guess to give the audience a little bit of, of uh, or the listeners a little bit of background here, they find, you know, they find DeWall and Reggie, they, you know, I don't want, I guess I'll spoil it yeah. because you can go and watch this on demand or get the or YouTube or YouTube scene or yeah. YouTube. Yeah. But, uh, they end up, you know, killing the two, uh, suspects. Well, Marty ended up killing, killing red, killing Reggie Ledoux while he was in handcuffs. Yep. And then, uh, DeWall ends killed, up... <laughs> killed himself on one of, how did Marty put it? An anti-intruder device. An anti-intruder. And then Russ goes, he calls it what the, uh, the, um, uh, Security system or something, or like the cracker ass security cracker ass security system. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's I love season one. This is what that's why I love season one because of the 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 humor from from Matthew McConaughey and 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 Harrelson. Woody Harrelson. It's just great. And even after even after they're telling the story about what happened in that shootout at Reggie and in, in Dewall's place, <laughs> they're telling it in 2012. But you can tell they're lying just to cover themselves. But it's funny how they're how they're doing it. Yeah. And Russ mimicking the gunshot and then his facial expressions. Yeah. Heavy shit. Yeah, he's like ferns were blowing up, everything behind us. It was a shit show. <laughs> <laughs> Marty fucking Captain America. Yeah, yeah. He 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 uh he capped him with one shot. <laughs> yeah, huh? ran up behind him, capped him with one shot. Yeah. And you just realize like the way they do that, that the the interview and then they actually show what, what actually, actually happens. Happened. You yeah. find out that they're lying and it's like, oh boy. But we get why they're lying though. They got they don't they don't want the shit to come back on them even though they're now ex cops. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, right after that, it's a transition. Well, transition. It transitions. Um, to, to, it transitions to kind of like what happens after the case they think is closed. Right. And um, it kind of shows their lives and what happens. You know, you think it's gonna everything's gonna be, be great. Right. It's Marty does get back with his wife. Yeah. And uh, Russ, he finally gets set up with a girl, a doctor that Maggie knew. Yeah. Yeah, and then you see the transition from '95 to 2002. Yeah, and you're like these guys, they're still not really doing okay, right? Like, right, they're not. I mean, Mar- Marty's daughters—they're teenagers now, and of course, the oldest one, Audrey, she's a real, 
she's a, in that whole gothic Marilyn Manson fuck everything that moves stage. Yeah, and there's one one of my favorite sequences out of the whole series is that that scene where Marty's talking to uh, Papania and Gil and Gilbro about. Um, He's like, he's like, you know, the, you know, the good days when they're behind you and he starts talking to him in the interrogation room. He's like, or do you just get ass cancer and like, you know, <laughs> pass away or something. But there's this like tracking sequence where you see how, uh, essentially the daughter is kind of, um, or no, it's the, the two daughters and, um, Took and the it's crown. A, yeah, yeah. The daughter takes the crown and throws it up in the, in the, in the tree. And Marty is talking about how. Uh, his biggest flaw was attention. He wasn't paying curse. attention. To, yeah, the t- detective's curse. Uh, he's like, you have all the clues, but uh, they're right in front of you, but you don't pay attention. Yeah, and he realizes that he, you know, he was just focused on this murder case the whole time, and and wasn't giving enough attention to maybe his wife and his kids, and that whole sequence is just so awesome the way they do it, where she throws the the one daughter. I, throws the crown up into the tree and then she's going, give it back, give it back. It's almost like you, you, there's a message there. Like he wants that time back with his kids. Right. Yeah. I never caught that before. It's a good catch. Yeah. And it was just, it was so crucial. I'm like, damn. And that's why I think the director, I can never pronounce his name. right. Fukunaga. Yeah. He, it was just brilliant. And how, and how like the crown we see stuck up in the tree and then it transitions many years later to being old and decrepit. Yeah. And then, and then like you get that crane shot where it comes back down and you see the daughters, the one daughter who's straight edge, I forget, Darcy, I think Ma- her name Maisie. Is, or Macy. Yeah. yeah Macy. She's, a, she's a cheerleader. She's a cheerleader. And then they like, they do this, like the way they choreo- choreographed, uh, the way they design the scene, yeah, they like you know they're doing the practicing their cheers and, and how they, they like give like a they're the, the, like departing handshake or whatever. Yeah, yeah, and then the then the Audrey the, uh, the Audrey and then the truck comes up, the beer cans fall fall out. out. You know, you know right there based on the scene that this girl is just a fuck up. You know, yeah. she's and she she's middle fingers as her departure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like oh no, you just you know this girl is up to no good. She's just probably hanging with the wrong crowd. And, and we're right later in the episode we see why. Yeah, and then the iron. Irony, right? Her mm-hmm. dad is a cop. You think that it would be she would be real straight edge, but she's she's anything but. She's just as promiscuous as he is, and he can't stand it either. Yeah, that's true. I didn't think about that. <laughs> but, it's uh, like only I'm allowed to be promiscuous in this house, not yeah. my daughters. So, so yeah, that that you know that scene happens, and then we find out later that based on an interrogation that Rust has with a uh, a robbery, a robber, a, a, a robber, a robber um, we find out that. They haven't caught the killer yet. The, the Yellow King is still, out, still there, out there. Yeah, still out there. And Rust gets back on the case again. He starts following leads, but he's not really supposed to because the case, the is, case is technically closed. So, but he does it anyway, and he leads himself right back to an abandoned school that they visited in ninety in ninety five in episode three called Light of the Way Academy. Right. It was blown out by Hurricane Andrew. It was it was one of those schools that was founded by. Reverend Billy Lee Tuttle was part of his uh, religious education initiative all throughout Louisiana. Basically, like giving money, giving tuition reimbursements to schools, private private schools, as long as they adopt his curriculum. Yeah. But most, but the schools by '95, most of them were the program was over, and nature basically reclaimed the schools and the buildings. Now '95, they had a groundskeeper taking care of the school, even though it was closed and still showed some sign of wear. But by 2002, it was fully abandoned. Like, no one cared about its upkeep no more. 
and Russ realized that a clue might be back in that school. So he goes back to the school and then he finds that another figurine. More of them, yeah. Yeah. And then this song is cued in. It's by Bosnian Rainbows, which is, they're kind of like a, uh, I would say, a modern alt-rock, progressive rock band. And when he holds a tree sculpture up into the light, it's when you hear the organs come in. It's like, yeah. it's like, that, is like that was like confirmation for him right there. Like, perfect. Yeah. And it and it zooms and it zooms out as well too. Yeah. And you see it zooms out among broken glass with black stars drawn yeah. on it as well, like Reggie Ledoux was saying. Yeah, it's almost like spiritual. Like you see it, like you see him holding this thing, yeah. like this figurine. It looks like like spiritual and religious. And he's been in the dark the entire time. As soon as he walked in that school, it was a, a dark, wet place. Yeah. Like we're, we're with ominous music and whatnot. It's like, what is going to happen? Is somebody in here? Someone's going to get him? But nah, he gets confirmation of what he was looking for. Yeah, and he knows he knows that he they don't have their guy yet. Yeah, it's unfinished business, yeah. So uh, I failed to mention, too, that Bosnian Rainbows is a Texas uh, a Texas band as well. Oh, they are. So there's another another uh, another choice another. by T, T-Bone Burnett of a uh, Texas band. Um and I like the I love these lyrics too. Like, so why do you smile at me? I've been away a, as long as snow. So I think that kind of ties back to the plot, right? That this this case has been going on for a long time. And the and the first the first lines of the song that kick in as the song kicks in and and, and the camera zooming out is Eli. You can't tell wrong from right. I think it is. That's a big that's a big theme in the show as well too. That kind of moral ambiguity, gray areas. I think it also you know, goes back to the killer and how he, he's just like, he's got all these mental, I feel like got all these mental problems, you know? He does, an abusive childhood. Yeah, uh, he's been burned, burned. he's got scars, you mm-hmm. know? So the, I, another great matchup there. Um, so yeah, then, then then we go to episode six, season one, Haunted Houses. That was a crucial episode, another one. Yeah, a lot of, uh, a lot of things happen in this episode. Yeah. In Marty's life, I would say. Uh, yeah. yeah. And um, and it's where Michelle Monaghan. That's I think that's where she becomes like the real, the real like that's where her her role in the whole story kind of gets got bigger, bigger because yeah. her character realized she's got to step her game up to yeah to get back at her husband. This she, when they when they play this song here, it's it's by Waylon Jennings called Way, Waymore's Blues. I just laugh every time I hear it. The scene it's so funny because. Marty is coming out of a pharmacy, I think, or a supermarket, and he's got a bag full of tampons. Yeah, and he brought him with him into the bar. It's like, why didn't you leave that shit in the car with you, dude? Yeah, it's like, what's wrong with you, man? But he feels emasculated doing it, being in a house full of women and going out, getting all their, getting all their, uh... you know, uh, yeah, I mean, getting their the shopping items and yeah. stuff. So he sees that bar, and I love the name of that bar, the Fox, Fox and the, the Hound. Hound. Yeah, I mean, I think it just not it, just a clever name. It works perfectly. I mean, it just works perfectly for the scene. And then he ends up uh, running into Beth again. Yeah. And, uh, well, I think he ends he up running into her in the, the T-Mobile store, right? In the T-Mobile store, yeah, when he was looking for a cell phone, yeah. But then he goes in the Fox and the Hound bar, and she's in there, too, for a drink. She has for a dirty martini. Yeah, yeah. So you know it's like, okay, all right, this girl, maybe, you know, she... Uh... She recognizes him. Yeah. He didn't recognize her at first, but later scenes where they're also at another bar... That's when Marty fully recollects her from the Hillbilly Bunny Ranch. Yeah, and i I think the uh, I think the interesting thing about that scene is that, um, like maybe like he doesn't recognize her initially, mm-hmm. but I I think it's great how they tie 
they tie that story back, you know, yeah. like, remember we talked about that before, uh, you know, Beth working at the, at the bunny ranch. And then you see, you see her again in, in the, the store and you're not, and She's I remember, I remember being like, who is that again? And I was like, Oh, that's, that's, Beth. that's, that's her, you know? And then she goes back into the bar and you're like, Oh God, you're like, Marty's gonna, he's, he's gonna, gonna do it. he's gonna do it. Yeah. yeah. You just know it. It's like, you, maybe, you, maybe not at that point, but what's it called? But the second time they meet and their conversations a lot more intimate and she's talking about God gave us these flaws. Yeah. And then she looks at him like, would you like some bourbon? I'm and like, you're like, you know, oh, it's going down. It's going, it's going down. And it's like <laughs> right in her apartment, you've got angel, angel sculptures, devil, devil sculptures. sculptures. And then she's on top of him riding him with that ass of hers. My God. Yeah. It's Lily like, Simmons is thick. It's like Marty. What are you doing, man? Like, yeah, it's like you back. Time is a flat circle. You're doing the same thing you were doing before again. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, when you look at the lyrics, I mean, it's. It's again, it's it's highlighting Marty's character flaws as infidelity. Well, I got a good woman. What's the matter with me? Yeah. What it makes me want to love every woman I see. Yeah, what? That's, that's the thing. It's like a man's going to be a man. No matter how good his woman is to him at home, how good looking she is, how she treats him. Ah, people say it's man's impulse to, to screw everything, everything as much as possible to spread their seed, but... Those can be those can be controlled. Yeah, and it just shows you there's there's kind of no shame and there's no respect. No respect for Marty and and his wife. You know, it's you know just, he has them for his wife, and once his wife realizes what he's doing again, it's like she doesn't cry, she doesn't leave the house, she decides to step her game up and get back at him, and boy does she. Yeah, but, and it's it's such another great scene. I don't I don't want to go on a tangent here about about you know go way off off, off there, into the weeds, but there's a scene where they're having. Uh, what's it? They're watching TV and she makes some dinner. And she goes, <laughs> it's like great. She, she gives him this look. He, and he's like, thank you. Uh, thank you. Love for the, for the, for the dinner, you know? And she yeah. goes, you're welcome. You're welcome. And Very she coldly. Just, he doesn't yeah. even notice how cold she's being. And his daughters got up and left the room too. Yeah. And she, and she's just staring at him and she's yeah. smiling. Cause she knows, she knows that he's so full of shit and yeah. he is up to no good. That's true. That's true. She knows what's up and he's just going to try to lie, you know? But what's it called? And and that, and the way she gets back at him though, and, and it really just fucked things up between him and Rust. Yeah, that's what really. I don't think she should have done that. I don't think but... she should have done that. No, she should have stuck with a stranger at the bar when she was wearing that red dress at the bar. And funny thing with that scene is too, she goes to the bar and asks for like a, uh, a amplified version of the of the beverage, alcoholic beverage that Beth got when we saw her at the Fox and Hound. Beth got a can I get a martini? Martin, can I get a dry martini? Make it dirty. Yeah. And then uh, what's her face? Maggie, when she offers, when the stranger at the bar offered to buy her that drink, she's like, "I like a dry martini, extra dirty." Yeah, yeah. So uh, there's some sexual uh, overtones there, I guess, right? Like, yeah, there's some sexual overtones there, yeah. And the song, and also there's another song at the end of the episode too, another version of "Sign of the Judgment" by Cassandra. I forget her last name. But this has more of a more of a bigger gospel feel to it, like multi-track gospel vocals. Gotcha. The song where the part where Marty and Russ they finally see each other again after their fight in two thousand two. Yeah. And they run each other in two thousand twelve, and Rust, after he offers to buy Marty a drink, we look at Rust's truck and we see the the tail light in there still has not been fixed. It's a sign of unfinished business. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was another good, uh, like kind of a, a subtle detail at the end of that episode. And, and, and also it's a lead into the beginning of the next episode when they're still playing the song at the, the sign of the judgment, the, end, the trailing end of it. Yeah. As they transition into Angel of the Morning by Juice Newton. And that's when he pulls out the gun. Like he pulls out the, uh, so like 
it always makes me laugh every time I see it because Matthew McConaughey walks up. He's older. He's got long hair. So he's he's chasing down. I don't maybe not chasing, but following him on this you know on this highway yeah. in the bayou or something. I don't know where it is, but it's in Louisiana somewhere. And they're driving down this like two lane road. Mm -hmm. And uh, you see him beeping. And I think you see him beeping in the beginning of the episode, right? Or maybe the middle. The middle when when Marty leaves the interrogation, he's driving and you see somebody beeping. And Marty's like, he's like, who the hell is that? Who the hell is that? And we don't know either. The audience doesn't know. Then you find out later it's Russ. At the end of the episode, yeah. Yeah, he's trying to get to meet back up with him. And he walks up to the car. And he's like, he's like, looks like you're doing good. And you see Rust and he's got the, just looks like so haggard beat down you know by age and drinking drinking yeah and smoking cigarettes too yeah he's like i'll buy you a beer he's like how about you buy me a how beer about, actually second i want you to buy me a beer when he sees how nice the car looks yeah, yeah. and then he walks away and then you hear that I, I think that sign of the judgment right yeah and he pulls out the revolver and like, I'm just like, it's like yeah i don't know what this fool's up to yeah <laughs> it just makes me <laughs> laugh all the time because i'm like woody harrelson man he's a badass he's like he, he just doesn't trust he nobody doesn't trust rust you know and it's lampshaded in the next episode too yeah exactly. Russ knows how long he's got a gun on him. Yeah. So we go to episode uh, seven. Seven after you're gone. Another good one. And uh, another good episode. And and I I like this I like this choice by T T Bone Burnett, uh, Joy, uh, Juice Newton, Angel of the Morning because it's kind of, uh, it's just it's kind of a weird choice and I think it it illuminates the awkwardness when they when they're talking in the bar yeah it does. you know you have this kind of like happy song but you know there's been nothing happy about this relationship you no, know not, between rust considering how, considering how they left it nah yeah and that big fight they had because rust end up ended up sleeping with marty's wife even though ugh, there, there's just so much there was so much going on in that scene that you can write essays about it though yeah yeah but they play that and it's just like this and Marty's Marty's very very more very aggressive towards us, making very taking a bunch of shots at him, talking about you don't understand me. If you were drowning, I'd toss you a fucking barbell. Yeah, <laughs> another great piece of dialogue. <laughs> that was a good line. Yeah, yeah, another great piece of dialogue. Um, and then we go to the next song by t- the. It's actually played at the end of the episode by Towns Van Zant Lungs. Lungs. And this was a good call out. You found this, and I I didn't actually think about this which I mean, uh, you've had you've had a bunch of good call outs actually thank you I, I've been a fan of this song for a long time now I remember Steve Earle who played Waylon on The Wire yeah a long time ago he mentioned this song Lungs by Towns Van Zandt it's like this song scared it's the one song that scared the shit out of me and, and what character was this again Waylon Waylon uh, he was a he was a sponsor for the bub- for Bubbles at the NAB right yeah. right okay he's got the beard got the beard yeah in the biker club yeah okay yeah, he said that a long time ago about this about this song right here, and listen to the lyrics, and how how dark they are. They're like yeah. it's like dark country music. And I mean, the scene it is kind of a dark scene too because we're presented with the killer, the killer, the, yeah, the, the yellow king. He he's on a lawnmower, and the revelation that we've seen the guy before too. It's like like holy shit, he was in episode three. And the fact of the matter that he's. Giving cops directions. Cops directions, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. it's kind of crazy. I mean, the whole scene's crazy. There's a cemetery there. He's riding on a lawnmower. And then, you know, two to- two cops, uh, Papania and, and Gilbro, pu- pull up, and they're lost. They're and... looking for the church that Russ and Marty went to back in 95 in episode one. Yeah, they're just trying to pick up, you know, where where Rust and, and Marty left off because of... Uh, because of you know uh, they, recent developments, they find that there was a what the um, 
it's the Spanish Lake, the Spanish Lake, Lake killing, Lake, Char- Lake Charles. Oh, sorry, Lake 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 Charles killing, um, which was a similar killing. So we know that, you know, this guy's been doing more bad stuff. And they're on it, but really they can't really do much without Russ and Marty, who have the more intimate knowledge of the case. Yeah, and we see that we see that where Rust is in the interrogation room, and they end up giving him the files, and he goes, "This is all you fucking have." Yeah, <laughs> and we see Rust. All he has like a fucking storage room full of shit. Yeah, yeah. So. And and Marty was laughing about. It. He goes, he goes, uh, he wasn't. You were. Uh, he's like, you weren't getting a read on him. He was getting, getting a read, read on, on you. you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, we find out how, how how good of an investigator Rust really is. He's, yeah, and and what's it? The later years, we find out Marty he outshines him really. I mean, Marty's always always been a good detective himself, but what's it called? Being partnered with Rust made him kind of a little bit lazy. Yeah, and then and then that's an interesting thing at how that. How that episode, how it changes later, where Marty actually ends up finding more, yeah. being more of an investigator later in the episodes in like seven and eight. Yeah, especially considering he's got his own, his own investigative firm, Hart Investigative Solutions. His. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, that's the only thing that he can he can call his now that he's divorced and his children are grown. You know, it's interesting that you found this one. I, I did a little bit more digging into Towns Van Zandt. He was. Uh, a musician that suffered from schizophrenia and um, he was taking, you know, injections. So lungs was essentially a song about, I I believe how he was having trouble breathing from his conditions. And I think from possibly the injections he was taking as treatment. So uh, the interesting part about this is that he ended up kind of going off the grid, moving around kind of like rust. Yeah, exact. Great point. I didn't even think about that. Like Rust, who was kind of living off the grid. Being After 2002, fit- yeah. Yeah. Um, and then he ends up writing all these great songs. He's like, you know, living off the grid, drinking like Rust. And mm-hmm. then he ends up writing all these great songs. So just, a, I think, a great pairing there. It was, definitely. And that was, one, that was my, one of my favorite parts of that episode, too. After the... Errol Childress character says, my family's been here a long, long time. Then goes back to mowing the lawn, and the Towns of Anzant song kicks in. This fits the backdrop to this barren forest, Louisiana area. Yeah, and you see, like, the tugboat in the, the background tugboat, yeah. coming up the river. I mean, excuse me. That's why I think season one is so great, because you have the uh, uh, two great characters and the backdrop of and, Louisiana. And Pizzolatto, the writer, he's from he's from Louisiana, all that area, too. I did not know that as well. That's a good catch. I didn't. I also want to mention uh, Towns Van Zandt is from Fort Worth, Texas, too. So <laughs> another another artist from Texas. So. Okay, you can't tell me that's not deliberate choosing these oh, Texas artists. It's got to be. It's mm-hmm. got to be. So we'll go to episode eight. It's the final episode called Form and Void. It's the only song I think they had in the episode, too. Yeah, I, it, which is, you may hear some other, I think they have some background music when they go interview uh, that lady. Uh, in the nursing home? I can't remember her name. No, it was um, the lady uh, who... Errol Ch- Childress' sister? Who worked for the Childress family. I oh, forget the, her name. The, Miss Dolores, that's the, her name. The black woman in episode yeah. seven, yeah. Right. All right. I'm sorry. I'm getting them mixed up. All right. So yeah, Miss Dolores. Yeah, she was in episode. She was in seven. episode seven. I'm sorry. Um, so yeah, I don't think there's much music in episode eight except the at last the, track by the Hat at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Angry River, which I think is. I actually, we were having discussions about this uh, last after the last podcast we did. I actually thought Lara Lynn sang the vocals because the uh, 
it, it sounded very similar to her voice, but she actually doesn't sing that last track. Um, and she, does, she actually does more songs in season two, which we'll talk about. But I think this, this song really emphasizes the fact that, um, you know, I, this has really had a big effect on their lives, this whole case. They've paid the price, you 18, know. 18 years? Or yeah. 17 or 18 years. I mean, yeah. when we look, kind of take a 50,000-foot view of these two detectives at the end of the day, you know, Rust still single, drinking every day. He survived. Mm-hmm. He survived the ordeal, but Marty, you know, lost his family, essentially. Yeah. They found... They found the killer, which, you know, the lion, the, the yellow king. I was going to say the lion king. <laughs> but um, they didn't get everybody. Who was they didn't get everybody. And, and, it, you know, and we learned this, you know, in the episode, we learned that they're, you know, uh, Edwin Tuttle, who's, who's the senator, senator for the state of Louisiana. Yeah. He helped cover it up. Yeah. Yeah. So it, we still find out there's more people involved in the, what Rust would call the sprawl. Right. And they didn't get everybody. But um, Marty is OK with that. So yeah. we got ours. Yeah, we got ours, you know, because they they paid off their debt, you know. And Russ, Russ sitting there like Jesus, like a fucked up, beaten to death Jesus or whatever in the hospital bed. Then Marty comes in and then Russ tells him, like, I saw him, Marty. I saw him back in 95 at the school. He, he was a son, blocked my face, and he had a beard back then. Yeah, I think it was because he had the beard. And then, yeah. remember, uh, Marty was beeping Yeah, because they got that call. About Reggie Ledoux. About Reggie Ledoux. But if they didn't, can you imagine that? If you think if you think if they didn't get that call, they would have found the killer then. They would have, yeah. Or if they, or as if Russ said, if you didn't cap Ledoux back in 95. We could have got the whole they, story from him. Yeah, yeah. So Possibly, yeah. Yeah. All right, so we jump into season two. A controversial season, I would say, to say the least. But we have the title uh, opening credit sequence here by Leonard Cohen, the song called Nevermind. I like this a lot. I like this choice. People say that Leonard Cohen, a lot of his vocals are too dispassionate, too deadpan. But that's just a certain style, really. I mean, the lyrics, they fit what we later see in the season as well. Like you wrote right here, Andrew, themes of corruption, murder, and conspiracy. Yeah, that's that's season two in a nutshell. Yeah, and I was reading an article online by Rolling Stones. Uh, they did an interview, Rolling Stone, they, I was going to say Rolling Stones. They did an interview with T-Bone Burnett, and he was talking about this song and why he picked it. He thinks this song is essentially the song of the century. And I mean, I think that's a pretty big that's statement. That's a bold statement. It's, it's, a, it's a bold statement, but... It's a great pick. I mean, I, I, I love it. I think it matches up perfectly with season two. Gets all of the themes, corruption. Um, and when you look at the lyrics, too. I was not caught, though many tried. That's what happened. A lot, a lot of the characters that get away at the end of the season. That's the ending, right? Yeah. Like Lieutenant, like Lieutenant Burris, who was part of the, the, the whole conspiracy. He was a member of the Vinci Police Department. And he was part of the 92 Diamond Robbery. But by the end of the, epi- by the, end of the season... He's the only one out of the four members that's left alive, and he and he ends up getting a promotion to chief of the Vinci Police Department. He wasn't caught. Tony Chassani, who becomes mayor, he wasn't caught. And the attorney general, Geldof, played by uh, the C.S. Lee, who played on Dexter. He played Masuka on Dexter. Yeah. 
he doesn't get caught neither. He becomes governor of California, and he's gets rich off of the Catalyst Rail Corridor thing that they had. Yeah, I wish I could say the good guys win in this season, but they don't. They gave like a hint that they might really, because Bezzariti, she gives all the information about the whole conspiracy, the diamond robbery, the rail corridor, and all the murders that happened afterwards, including Casper. She gives all the information to the reporter that Ravel Coro roughed up in the first episode. I love how they tied that in, too, because yeah. uh, you, I saw him, and I'm like, oh, man, that's actually the guy that, that like Coral you said. fucked up, yeah. Yeah, he beat him up, and... Um, He's got the, you know, it's interesting because you see that scene where he beats up the reporter and he puts a mask puts on. A, he puts, what he puts the black gloves on. Who yeah. you see Marty? Uh, that's something we didn't mention in season one. That's he, a good catch. Yeah, yeah. Go he on. puts on the the white gloves and goes. I'm sorry, black the white gloves. black gloves. Hey, and, OJ. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes in there and he beats he beats up the reporter. But you know what we didn't mention in season one. Uh, Marty finds that finds out that his daughter had sex with two, uh, I guess, eighteen um, year olds. I guess eighteen year olds. She was under uh, underage. So Marty was, of course, dis, you know, disgusted that his his daughter would do that, and is contemplating file filing statutory rape charges against those two uh, two individuals. Instead, <laughs> he said he gives him, he gives him a choice. Like I'll do I'll, either I can file charges against you. Or I can just beat you the fuck up right here, right now. Yeah. With understanding that you don't come near my daughter. So that's what he does, essentially. He puts on these black gloves. And then, you know, when you look at season two with Velcoro, he puts on the black gloves, too. But he has to drink and all that before he gets started, though. Yeah. Yeah. And he's just such, such a brutal character in the, in, he, in the show. He is. He is. And it's like he knows. Like, Velcoro knows how much of a piece of shit he's become ever since his days as a uniformed officer. Yeah, and since his divorce from his wife, basically what what made him go downhill was killing killing his wife's alleged rapist. Yeah, and uh, I mean I have some questions about that, and we'll talk about that a little bit more later. But okay, uh, we go into the first episode, of the Western Book of the Dead. Great title. Yeah, and especially and... considering they're in California now, and uh, one thing we haven't mentioned is a true detective. The ser- the series is an anthology series. Every season. It's going to be a different plot, different cast, completely unrelated to the first, even though you might see parallels. Season one took place in Louisiana. Season two takes place in the Los Angeles, California area. And the season three, which is supposed to take place next year, and has Mahershala Ali, who won the Oscar for Moonlight and was Cottonmouth on Luke Cage and Remy Dalton on uh, House of Cards. He's going to be the lead detective in that series. And that season is going to take place in some small Ozark, Arkansas town. Yeah, and I'm so glad you mentioned that because I forgot to mention that in the beginning. I wanted to. Um, I think that's going to be really interesting because you have, like you said, you have season one who, that takes place in Louisiana. It's in the South. Then you go to the West Coast for season two in L.A. And then now you're going to like the Appalachians, like the mountains, kind of mm-hmm. like those arc. I, I think that's going to be really interesting. But I think to my point, it makes it really difficult to write show like really good shows because you're having to kind of pick up and start over again i mean with an entirely new cast i mean he's it's it, the true detective hasn't aired since 2015 so he's a he's had a lot of time since then to actually just like brainstorm reassess where they went wrong on season two and how they can actually just have more make it more entertaining i guess and make it more on par with season one, I suppose. Although I doubt they can do that, but well, they're bringing in David Milch, who's done uh, Deadwood, and mm-hmm. uh, a, I think a 
he did some writing on luck as well. I don't know if you've seen that show. It was a Michael Mann show that I think aired one or two seasons, but um, I think he's a great writer and I think he's going to bring a lot into season three. I'm really psyched for it. And I'm really psyched for the cast to Marshall Ali. Me too. Um, I loved him in uh, what's it? um, uh, House of Cards. I really liked his role there. I haven't, I actually didn't actually see the film where he won an Academy Award, but he, just seems like a great actor. He's good. He used to be a rapper too, by the way. He was Prince Ali. I think he was a member of Hieroglyphics at one point. Whoa. Yeah, he released an album back in 2006 or 2007, which probably is now a collector's item considering how his star has risen. Wow, man, that guy is just multi-talented. He can just like do whatever he wants. And he was on Luke Cage too. And he was he was the villain, the primary villain for the first half of the season one of Luke Cage before they killed him off. But that pissed me off because of who we got left with. The villain that we got left with, Diamondback, he was nothing compared to Marshala Ali's Cottonmouth. He had like a certain New York, like a black New Yorker swagger about him. Like the kind, like the kind of thing you'd expect to hear in a rap lyric from like Biggie, who incidentally, his Marshala Ali's character has a portrait of in his office in Luke Cage season one. I got to check that show out. Is that a show? T- is that Showtime? Or? Not Netflix. It's Netflix. One of, it's one of Marvel's Marvel's Netflix shows. And yeah, it's definitely it's definitely rated R too. And they got season two coming out on June twenty second as well. All right. And it has a bigger hip hop influence on it than season one had because they had. Sorry to go off on a tangent. For Luke Cage, they had what's it called? They had every episode of the first season was named after a gangstar song, and they had Method Man as a guest star as himself in there. Season two is gonna be. They're gonna have every song named after a Pete Rock, CL Smooth song. Every episode named after one of their songs. Rakim is supposed to be in there, and it's supposed to be have a bigger influence courtesy of the showrunner, uh, Coker, I think the name is. Okay. Yeah, I definitely have to put that on the list of shows that I need to see, including Power, which uh, you mentioned previously. And Snowfall on Netflix. Snowfall. I mean, I'm on FX, my bad. FX, yeah. That's <laughs> but, that's the uh, John Singleton show? Yeah, about the crack cocaine rise in South Central back in the 80s. He did... Um, What's it? Dead Presidents, right? John Singleton, or am I thinking? Of, am I totally botching that? He did Poetic Justice, Poetic Boys Just- in the Hood, Shaft, Baby Boy. Okay, I'm, I'm thinking of another director then. But. He, I, no, I think the Hughes brothers did Dead Presidents. I okay. think. Okay, all right. Um, so we we go to the song by Lara Lynn in the episode number one, the Western Book of the Dead, my least favorite life. Man, this is a depressing song. It is Lara Lynn. She's like the, the depressing bar. Bar artist, as, as it shows throughout the whole season. And she's actually in the show. She's shot in that scene. Uh, she's in the bar, actually, you know. Playing herself, playing her music. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I thought that was cool. But she's got great vocals. And in the scene with, with, with Ray and, and, and Frank, they're sitting in that booth. Her voice is so powerful that, like, they actually turn for a second and look, you know. Yeah. And I, I think that happens a couple times in the season, but. And it starts off, which is her playing the song and just Ray and uh, well, Frank Semien just looking at each other before they actually start to have a dialogue, like a yeah. good several minutes before. Yeah, you're just like, they're like, you just know those two guys, <laughs> those two guys are, are hard individuals and have a lot of stuff going on. And they can communicate non-verbally too. Yeah, yeah. And there's, and like the whole Larylin's lyrics, like this is my least favorite life. I mean, it shows like a montage of like all the, all the main detectives and how their lives are basically, they're not happy with theirs. Like, Bezzarides, played by uh, Rachel McAdams, you see her getting drunk at, a, at one of Frank Simeon's casinos, and you tell her life isn't happy. She does she distrusts men. 
Yeah. And she, she has gambles. A, she gambles, has a strained family life. And who else? Taylor Kitsch, Paul Woodruff, Woodruff who yeah. works for the California State Police Department. You see him like doing a half-assed suicide attempt. On a bike. On a bike, yeah. With the song playing in the background. He's, yeah. He's not comfortable with himself, his past, or his sexuality. Yeah. And um, there's a lot of like... The season two is is pretty depressing. I mean, like it, it it's good. I mean, I think the drama's good in the mm-hmm. show, but you know, I thought season one, thought season, season one, one was, was depressing, but like it wasn't that depressing. But there was, I think there were it maybe it provoked. It was more thought provoking season one. I thought. Yeah. I mean, I remember when after it ended, really, I was still and I still do on social media sometimes go around putting the hashtag time as a flat circle. That was the one takeaway that I had from season one. And even Russ Cole's philosophical treaties that he, that we have various episodes, it's yeah. like he makes valid points. Yeah, he's a nihilist and somewhat pessimistic, but his points, his insight, the character's insight about humanity, is very interesting. Yeah, and um, I think you know Lara Lynn, you see her you know more throughout the season, but I think she's kind of a gem. I mean, oh yeah, she the T Bone uh, Burnett found you know kind of discovered her. And um, she's got a great voice. She I mean, does. Just, I, I, I'm kind of excited to see what she does later. You know, with with uh, scoring and for being on different soundtracks. And uh, I have a couple of her albums just because of True Detective. Because of this, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so we go to an, to another song in the same episode, Western Book of the Dead. It, it's uh, all all the gold in California. You actually told me about this episode. I'm sorry about this song. Yes. And. Um, I was looking a little into this. It's actually a cover by the by the Gatlin brothers. Oh, it is a cover. Yeah, it's a cover. Um, but the Gatlin brothers, it's kind of more like folky, country sounding. This is like a heavy of, rock. This is more of a badass kind of. I, I like it more. You know, like I like maybe I'm just a little bit more of a rock guy. I don't know, but it just has more of a, a like a hardcore kind of feel to it, like hardcore rock or hard rock, and um, and it goes with the title of the episode, the Western Book of the Dead. Yeah, and all the gold in California. It's like California is a gold mine, as we see later in the episodes with the rail corridor. Yeah, everybody trying to get a piece of that. Yeah, and I think um, it, it works perfectly with the plot. It's a song done. It's a cover done by uh, Nick um, Nick Cave, I think, or and and Warren Ellis. Warren Ellis. Yeah, I don't know a comic book writer named Warren, Warren Ellis. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's a great song, and. Uh, the lyrics go all the gold in California is a bank in the middle of Beverly Hills. So if you're dreaming about California, it don't matter at all where you've played before. California is a brand new game, which I think is a probably like a describes a new the season two, for example, California is a brand new game. Yeah, yeah. More different than Louisiana was. And it's a, you know, it's a new, like, like you said, it's an anthology. It's a new yeah. setting. It's a new, New setting, exactly, yeah. 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 Like meta-commentary from Pizzolatto or T-Bone Burnett or why they chose the song. Yeah. And um, you're kind of like sitting there when you see that scene. You see all three of the police officers. Yeah, first meeting. Yeah, and you're kind of like, what the hell? What are they going to do now? Yeah. Yeah. And it's almost almost like, I, I would say it's almost like the first episode of season one where they play the Black Angels. And yeah, they leave the you kind of wanting more. I, I kind of I thought this was the Black Angels at first when I first heard it. The yeah, first time I watched it because you get that like the same type of sound, same kind of hard, ominous hard rock. Yeah, yeah. 
And uh, I don't know if these guys are from 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 Texas, but <laughs> if they are, then okay. They, yeah. They, then that's no longer a coincidence. Yeah. Then the, he just loves Texas bands or something. Yes. <laughs> but uh, we go to episode two. Night night finds you. Um, we go with Lara Lara Lynn again. A church in ruins. And this is also also played as well in the actual episode, A Church in, in Ruins, which well, I believe is the scene where episode uh, six. Yeah, this yeah, it's played in it's played in this episode too, where Frank and a uh, Frank and Velcoro are talking about the Casper's second home in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. Frank he gives Velcoro information about the home and tells him where to look, and now and tries to tell him about what's it called. You, next year, come with me. You could be Vin, you could be chief of Vinci PD or whatever. Yeah. But I think the title "Church in Ruins" also a church in ruins also refers to destroyed faith in their in their institutions in the police department. Like let's look at the characters like uh, Paul Woodruff. He works for the state police and he's on administrative leave because of some some famous actress who accused him of trying to solicit a blowjob from her, even though she was trying to put the moves on him. And they put him on leave and won't let him touch his bike. It's just like, and even his uh, even his time in the military with Black Mountain. Yeah. Later on, he's like, I thought if we just did the right thing, followed orders, we'd be rewarded for it. No. We treat like nothing. Yeah. And I think everybody wants to be something that they're, they're, they can't be, like, because of certain events, right? Like, Frank can't be the rich, wealthy land order that he wants to be. Because he's too trusting. He has that whole honor among thieves thing that he thinks... I think there should be honor among criminals, really, but he's not. Casper played him, and Osip played him too. Yeah, he didn't have no money at, at the end of Casper's death. And then, and then Velcoro wants to be, you know, the the great father that he aspires to be, and he wants to be with his son, but he doesn't know whether it's actually his son because his his wife got raped. But and either way, the son doesn't want to seem to be around him that much either. Yeah, yeah, the son's kind of awkward, but you know, Velcoro's kind of ab- like abusive as well, like verbally abusive. Verbally abuse. abusive, yeah. And um, I think you know, Woodruff wants to be the good guy, he wants to be the good soldier, wants to be a cop, but then ends up getting screwed over by that actress. Who... Bureaucracy, yeah, and, yeah. And then, and what happens with them is, what's it called? In order to get things out of the way, they promote the detective, which he hates, even though it's a promotion, right? Because he's, he's not on the bike. He's on the bike. He's better off out in the field, like they like they say many times in the episode. And Bezaridis, I mean, her faith in men was destroyed from her childhood abuse and her father's her father's offhand parenting. Yeah, he was he's he's different. He's different, yeah, to say the least. Yeah. <laughs> Which is David Morse, who played plays her father, a good actor. Yeah, he's a really good actor. He's been in a bunch of uh, bunch of movies as in a supporting role. And she ends up getting screwed by her police department. She works for the county police, the Ventura County Sheriff's Department, and what's it called? The mayor of Velcoro's city police department, of Vinci. He goes to the Ventura County Sheriff's Department, and says that didn't like the fact that she interrogated his wife and his and and his children without him being there. Yeah. So he says something and gets her demoted down to a uniform cop in charge of the evidence room. Yeah, that and I, you know, I love, I like that actor who plays uh, Chisani. His name's Richie Coster. Richie Coster, yeah, he's English. He was in Dark Knight. He played the Chechen in Dark Knight. Yeah, he was in Creed. He's a great actor, and I, I just, I'm, I'm really excited as well to see what, what different roles he gets because I think he's, he's really good, really good actor. The main, ca- funny you mentioned that. A lot of the main, the main cast, only Vince Vaughn is the only American in the main cast. And and I think he's a, a lot like Michelle Monaghan uh, Monahan in the season one. He's kind of, or maybe not, but not he's so kind of he's kind of the sleeper, he's the sleeper like you know actor 
and like performance wise in this in this season because he's you more know, known for comedies. And yeah, whatnot. he's known for comedies, but I think he did a great job this season. And some people, I don't know why some people crack on him about this season, but I think he did. I I really was ex- proud of what he he put forth in this in this season. The one thing I didn't like about Vince Vaughn's character as Frank Simeon was I think he was kind of a stand-in for Cole. Because you see how he always tries to use like large SAT words. He uses them correctly, right? But I think he just shows it, does it to show up how smart he is at times, and go off into like some kind of like re- reflective philosophical tangents and whatnot, like Cole used to do. I don't think he's as eloquent as Matthew McConaughey in reciting those. Those. Like, it sounds long... forced. Yeah, yeah. I, I did feel I did see that a lot in this in season two. Is like things seem forced, and maybe that was because there was a lot of pressure and putting out another season. That's like good after season one. Yeah, I think it was kind of rushed, and I think some of the ex- HBO executives had said that in some of the articles I read. They did say it was rushed, and, and then they subsequently said they didn't know if True Detective was going to be back. Yeah. But we know it's going to be, it's going to return now. Yeah, yeah, it's going to return. Um, so we go to the next track in episode two. Uh, Night Finds You, Bobby Bland, I Pity the Fool, I love this track. Bobby I Bl- love this scene, too. Bobby Blue Bland, yeah, that was a yeah. good one. Considered the Frank Sinatra of blues. Mm-hmm. And um, this is a great scene. Uh, Velcro is instructed by Frank Simeon to investigate this house. Casper's house that he had out in Hollywood. Yeah, that um, it was different from his main residence, a mansion that he had in Beverly Hills. Yeah. This was a house that he basically took hookers to. Yeah, and he walks in. And you hear this song on the radio, mm-hmm. and you just know something's gonna happen, but you don't know you don't, don't know, know what's what gonna happen or when, yeah. or when it's gonna happen. He finds the camera in that closet, and then you see the the, the, the person with a bird mask right behind him with, with a, a shotgun. shotgun. But he, what's it called? He doesn't. Kill he knows the person's. He doesn't know. He knows the person's there. Velcro just keeps walking, walking. Then he pulls out his gun, turns around rapidly, and he gets hit with a shotgun, shotgun blast. Around. And you're like, oh crap. Oh, crap. I think I kill him off this early. And then he walks up to him and shoots puts him, him again, point blank range with a shotgun. It's like, how could this guy live? Yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. And 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 the song itself, I pity the fool. I look at people. I know what you're wondering, what they're doing. They're just, just standing, standing there. there, and that's exactly what that's exactly what the the killer was doing. He was just standing there behind him, and, and then by, he turns. And by extension, the whole Vinci Police Department too. I mean, they know. Holloway and Burris, the heads of the Vinci Police Department, they know why Casper was killed, right? And what's it called? They're using Velcoro to steer the direction away from, steer it away from them, playing him for a fool pretty much. And that's why they were telling him land deals are not going to solve this case, pinned on a hooker or something. Yeah. And, um, you, you know, I think this episode is like, it's kind of like in this sequence, it's kind of like that oh shit moment where, you're, where he gets shot and you're like, oh shit, they just... They just iced one of their characters like the Sopranos, right? Yeah, or Game of Thrones, yeah, all early and shit. Yeah, and you're like, man, they're going to ice Colin Farrell mm-hmm. <laughs> early on in the early show. Early on, that's like, what I thought, yeah. Yeah, and I was like, damn, this show is going to, this show is, this it's getting real. It's getting crucial, yeah. Yeah, and then we transition into episode three. This is this is kind of where I, li- I really like Puzzolato's writing because it's like so dark and twisted and... He's wearing messed up. This season, especially this scene right here, that where the episode starts out at in the bar, Ray's dream sequence, with that uh, Kanye Conway Twitty lookalike. He look, almost looks like Elvis. Yeah, know? he does. Yeah, he does. That's who I thought it was. Like who was actually? I thought he was doing like an Elvis cover or something. But and I've been watching Twin Peaks that whole season, the old series and whatnot, and 
this scene right here, I'm like, okay, Pizzolatto, along with Damon Lindelof, they have a lot of David Lynch influences on them to make this kind of make this that surreal. Yeah, and um, so we the song is done by Conway Twitty. It's called "The Rose," and it's a, you know we have the dream sequence. So it is. I don't know the actor who plays his father. Uh, Fred Ward. Fred Ward. Mm-hmm. So it's Fred Ward and Colin Farrell, Ray Vocoro, and his dad sitting in this booth and the same bar that uh and ray know, goes to ray meets, goes to continually yep and uh so he's sitting there and this song is playing and ray looks down he's talking to his dad he looks down and he's got a big shotgun blast right in his right in his chest so he's bleeding and this song's playing it's it's kind of uh i don't know contradictory is that maybe that's the the better word for it because it's a it's a son and father talking in a booth and it's a song about love, but that ain't the topic of discussion. It's really. not the topic of discussion, and I think it's premonition, premonitive, really premonition. It's it's actually completely the opposite. Velcoro's like Velcoro's um, Velcoro's father is essentially telling him, you know, they're talking about their estranged, like you know, uh, I guess difficult relationship, and uh, he's saying, you know, you were you were. Uh, Ray is saying that you know you always kind of made me nervous. You always kind of always kind of made me feel made nervous. Me nervous. He's like he's like, well, maybe you were a nervous kid. Yeah, maybe you lacked grit. Yeah, maybe you lacked grit. You know, and uh, you would think they'd be talking about something like you know, oh, it's nice to see you. Kind of like it's not fatherly at it's all. It's not fatherly at all. Nah, it's like, and Ray, he has more he has more questions. He's talking about the trees. You're running. You're not fast enough. Ah, oh, son, they shoot you to pieces. Yeah, he's essentially telling his son how he's gonna die. It's pretty fucked up, for lack of a better word. I mean, it is, it is. But and like I said too, because the whole sequence of like we don't, I don't know what the hell they were talking about at first neither. That's why I kept thinking this is like, it's like that red room or whatever from a uh, Twin Peaks. Yeah, where like Lynch is David Lynch has like a talent for being very surreal and keeping the audiences in the dark until the very end with very weird shit. And Pizzolatto, he was wearing that David Lynch influence on his sleeve for entire season two. Yeah, and I mean, you look at the lyrics. Some say love is a river uh, that it drowns the tender reed. Some say love, it's like a razor. I feel like, well, mm-hmm. that that line right there, that's this scene. I mean, it's a razor. He's telling his son, like, hey, this is how this is how these guys are going to kill you. Yeah, basically, the word for exactly how it happened, too, yeah. Yeah, and then uh, we go to... Uh, well, I mean, then we realize, you know, in episode in episode two, he wakes up, and that's the song that's playing. Episode three, yeah. Or episode, episode three. three, sorry. Episode three, yeah. He wakes up, and it's actually the song that he hears while he's, like, knocked out. Knocked out, yeah. He wakes up and finds he pissed himself, and he only got hit by, like, a... Those riot rounds. Riot, riot rounds, yeah. Yeah. But they still hurt, though. But I was like, damn. Even a riot round at even, that range that could range, kill yeah, you. Yeah, it didn't even <laughs> penetrate. It didn't even kill you. Left you worse for wear for the whole episode, though. He couldn't even run without his ribs being in pain and whatnot. Yeah. And that doctor was like... Uh, How much he, do you drink? Yeah, yeah. All that I can. All that I can. And you're like, he's like, do you want to live? And then he looks at his x-rays of his chest, and then it fades out to Bezzarides and Woodruff in the car talking. Yeah. Uh, it's like you really feel for this guy, because it's like, he's like a, such a burnout. He is. He's like, How are you? why are you even still a cop for? Yeah. yeah. And, you, and you live right next door to the police department you work at. Yeah, you know, it's like this guy is, uh, he doesn't really have much, no, except have the much. son. That's only has to live for, yeah. So we go to episode four here called Down Will Come. Lara Lynn, it only takes one shot. 
this is another thing I like about season two is that they introduced a little bit more action sequences. Oh, they had to. They compete with that tracking shot from season one, episode yeah. four. And it's nice how they parallel it with season four, the second season, too. Yeah. Um, it r- reminded me a little bit of Heat, like that gun battle. Oh, that yeah. They had the, the car, the, the car, bank. the bank robbery, mm-hmm. you know, and. Um, they go in just totally unprepared. They didn't know. I mean, the whole day was a setup on both of their parts. I mean, the the Lido Amari, Amaria, the the meth, the criminal who they thought what's it called used hookers to rob Casper's place. What's it called? The the place he was staying at when they push up on that was a meth lab. They didn't know that. Yeah. So they end up shooting and having a big shootout and blowing up the whole mm-hmm. the whole the, warehouse the whole building. Yeah. yeah. And the shootout on the bus too, where he actually just killed people on there and used human shields. Yeah. It was. Um... Again, like Heat, you know, where Sizemore picks up the girl and tries to use her as a human shield. shield. Yeah. yeah. And they just went in totally unprepared. I mean, they, they didn't have a SWAT team. They didn't have... The whole thing was a setup, really. Even in even right before when they're all getting prepared in the Vinci Police Department, Lieutenant Burris, he dryly and more tellingly asks, is all, is all this manpower really necessary? Yeah. And then they're all like, when they leave, they're like, let's be safe out there. You yeah. Know, like, uh... And then Burris and Holloway look at each other like, y'all are... this." Looking back, it's like they knew, they knew. They set the whole thing up. Yeah. Like getting rid of all evidence of a 23-year-old robbery. So th- then they have that big shootout, and you realize just like, I think what, what was interesting is like the shootout, you realize they end up shooting, one one of the detectives ends up shooting a civilian. Yeah. They're just like, you. I think that some people were like, oh, this is kind of stupid, I think, watching it, because they're like, Oh, these detectives aren't trained, but yeah, detectives are not SWAT teams. They're not SWAT teams. They're not marksmen. I mean, like some. Well, some of them are. Some of them are, but I mean, it's not like they had rifles, like high-powered rifles or snipers. These are not Dirty Harry. Yeah, these aren't like you know ex-military guys. These are investigators. Well, uh, Woodruff, he is. Woodruff, yeah, I forgot. Yeah, Woodruff did was a was a contract, and it showed it showed that whole that whole shootout. Yeah, (laughs) it showed the entire scene pretty much. Yeah, he had people's back left and right. It's like this dude's as Velcro described him like several months after that shootout. It's like he was a fucking god warrior that day. Yeah, he was the Ice Man. Like I mean, he just he was stayed cool and cool under pressure. He's been in that kind of shit before. Yeah, yeah. So uh, and I think we go to that song by Larry Land and only takes one shot. It pretty fitting, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> considering yeah. the shootout. Yeah, it only takes yeah. one shot, yeah, to ruin everybody's career. <laughs> yeah, look, look at the te- look at Detective Dixon in that scene. He got one headshot. He was done. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I didn't even think about that. Good call out. Um, and then, you know, that one lyric two can be undone by three. You know, oh, yeah. you know, Ray. I guess kind of is for, but he quits. But he quits the police force. And, but Annie and Paul really get yeah Bezzarine. demoted. Bezzarides, she maintains her rank as sergeant, but she's a uniform sergeant now in the evidence control room. And uh, Woodruff, he gets a promotion to detective, but he's miserable as that. He's like insurance fraud or something. Insurance fraud, yeah. Yeah, so. Just to get him out of the way all because of politics and bureaucracy, even though he did nothing wrong in the first place. Yeah, I mean, he was like the hero of that situation, you know. He I mean, took out the. Uh... I meant the bike situation. I mean, oh, yeah, yeah. With the hook, with the actress, like he did nothing wrong. Yeah, I mean, he just pulled her over, and she, you know, went to her publicist. She, and she, publicist kind of made up this story to, mm-hmm. to screw him, essentially, for lack of a better word. So then uh, we go to episode six, Church and Ruins, which we mentioned before. It's song by Lara, uh, actually not by Lara Lynn. It's by the Black Angels again. We see them. Yes. And the Texas band returns, Black Grease. I like this song uh, a lot because... Um, oh, oh, that's another song, too, by the way. The same episode... 
the New York Dolls, humans being the scene where Ray Velcro is having his, his cocaine alcohol binge in his place. Oh, yeah, and he puts – is that the song he puts on in the CD player? Yeah, or? New York Dolls, yeah. Yeah. Um, that I, I That's a good call out because I, I was – you know, there's a lot of music you hear, and it's like how do you – like how, some I, of it – how do you track it down? I guess maybe Shazam or Shazam, something. Sometimes, <laughs> yeah, and TuneFind, yeah. TuneFind, yeah. Thank you, TuneFind. Oh, yes. Bless you, TuneFind. Give, the, give them a plug as well as uh, T-Mobile, as we mentioned before. Schwing. <laughs> so uh, so we go to uh, – I th- actually, I think I skipped over one. I think we're, we, we, we got to The only thing we're fighting for, yes. Yeah. Other Lives, Episode 5. Episode yeah. 5, Lara Lynn. The only thing worth fighting for. Um, it does appear at the end of the series, too. Uh, I think the ending. No, no, no. That was still what's it called. That was still lately. So lately. Okay. See – See, Cy just keeps correcting me here. Thank God I have him. Yes, uh, <laughs> yes thank God. <laughs> um, so yeah, this song is played. Um, I love. I really like this song too. This is. It's got like kind of a tech, like uh, not a techno, but like not even. It has more, still more that a whole bar acoustic vibe to it. Oh wait, wait, no. I'm thinking. You know what I'm thinking of? I'm thinking of um, uh, lately. That's what I was thinking of. The only thing worth fighting for is all. You're right. It's all acoustic. So. Um, I'm getting all mixed up because she has like six songs that yeah, she does late, on the season. Late, like, lately had at least some drums into it included somewhere, some kind of snares. Some ele- kind of electric drums or something. Yeah. Like, um, this song, yeah, it's it's uh, I like it a lot. It's it's emotional. She, you, know, you realize that Annie and Ray kind of have a thing for each other. At that point, they hadn't seen each other in four months since Velcoral quit the Vinci Police Department. And the conversation they have is pretty raw, too. It's like... They're both sitting there smoking cigarettes, drinking. Yeah. Bezzarides is still talking about pursuing the whole, pursuing the, what's it called, the whole Casper's murder again, saying we were not finished. That shootout that day, it was fucked up. It shouldn't have happened. Yeah. Velcro doesn't seem to care at first. Yeah. Then Woodruff, his name comes up, and they both feel for him. He's like, did you hear about the kid? I mean, fucking fraud investigation? Yeah. He was a god warrior that day. I know. He's, I spoke to him. He's miserable, too. He, he should get out, too. He's too good for that. He belongs in the field. Yep. So they, uh, and then I think Ray at one point, he was like, you know, I've been thinking about you. I didn't realize that I was thinking about you until I saw you just now. Yeah. So you kind of realize there's like possibly a thing going on with them. And you look at the lyrics, the song, the song kind of, rep, you know, it kind of represents that, uh, you know, you cannot take that from me. My song, my small reprieve is your heart, heart of gold. gold. We were like a battlefield locked inside a holy war going back to that shootout. Yeah. Um, your love is my due diligence, the only, only thing worth fighting for. So, yeah, man. The, they did a good job with getting Lara Lynn, too, because I did. think she's, she's such a talent. I do like her a lot. So then we go to episode six, Church and Ruins, the Black Angels. We see them again with the song called Black Grease. Yeah, where um, they escape the, uh, the the sex party that we've, yeah. been, we've been hearing about throughout the entire season. All those rich and powerful men and their businessmen, politicians getting... Sex from hookers, not realize they're being blackmailed at the same time. Yeah. And Bezzarides infiltrates it, trying to figure out what's going on in there, who's in there, and whatnot. <laughs> the thing that always kind of gets me is when uh, Ray beats up that security guard, like kills him, and he like it's like, Jesus, Ray. He like hits like, him overkill. 50 times. Overkill. Like, you <laughs> must have had a lot of rage in you. Yeah, it's like he's 
he's he's he's good, man. He's down. He's down. Yeah. <laughs> there's like blood all over his Just face. Knock the dude out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's like so. There's like two murders that happened that night. You know? Actually, yeah, you're right. Annie committed <laughs> one, and Ray committed one. Yeah. Although people actually saw Annie commit hers. Yeah, she does the slice and dice on the security guard. Yeah, she's been waiting to do that her whole life. She said in the next episode. Yeah, and then she's like regretting it, which is kind of because she knows people saw her face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she's a uh, she's a suspect, right? <laughs> but at the same time, mission accomplished, and even, and more so, she found she found a woman that she was looking for in the first episode. So um, she's getting some closure there. Yeah, Vera. Yeah. So they they end up running out of that place as the mansion security guards are chasing them, shooting at them, and they get like raise a raise charger. Oh, I love that car, man. <laughs> Yeah, because I used to own one. But, uh, you know, they they drive away. And then, again, we heard that the, uh, another badass track from the, the Black Angels. So they, they uh, cut a whole ass out of there. Yeah, you to, to just kill, 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 kill. You can kill what you can. And yeah. you kill, 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 kill anything you want. Yeah. I and mean, that's, what, that's what a lot of the antagonists have been doing in, in, in this season for the 20 years. For the 20 years history of the season, really, that, that goes back as far. Like, yeah. like Casper setting up, setting up the jewelry store owners to be killed by Burris and Hollow Burris and Dixon with Holloway covering for them. Yeah, yeah, and you know, with Russ, with remember what Russ Russ Cole says. I think it's in episode maybe like four of season one. He's talking to the 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 uh, prostitute, and he goes, "I'm police." He's like, "I can do terrible things easily with impunity." impunity. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think you see that here. You know, you have two cops that are killing people and getting but away with it. They didn't get away with it, though. I mean, yeah, they, I mean they, escaped. they escaped. They escaped, but, you know, I don't know. We only don't, for so long. Only for so long. So uh, and then we, 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 we skip over episode seven. I don't know if you were able to find anything there that were no, stuck out. There were no songs in episode seven at all that I, that I thought stuck out for me. Nah. But uh, I guess to give some plot context, I guess... Frank burns his clubs down because the Russians, uh, the Russian Osip Granov, who he was supposed to go in business with for the rail quarter, he bought his casino and his nightclub underneath his nose. And Frank plays along with it at first, not not wanting to tip his hand or whatever. Yeah, plays along with it, and then what's it called? Decides, you know what? Fuck it. If I can't have my club or my casino, neither can you. So as, as an act of two middle fingers, he takes all his money out of there and burns both down. Yeah. Yeah, it starts to get real. <laughs> and then, and yeah, as far as the plot goes, a murder mystery about who killed Ben Casper and why, that becomes more in the focus, too. We see the the conspiracy becomes unraveling more. And, and we start to realize that Blake had kind of a part in undermining Frank and his operation. And they, and they alluded to that more earlier. Like in the previous episode, he was at the sex party, too. He was at the sex party introducing Geldof, the attorney general, to hookers and being around... McCandless, the CEO for the Catalyst Group, Holloway, Tony Chisani, who helps set up the sex parties with Casper. And the attorney general who's Geldof. running f- uh, yeah, who's running for governor. Yeah, right? we saw him pair him up with a hooker. Yeah. And that's disturbing. <laughs> that is, yeah. But they got they got blackmail material on him to keep him in line though. Yeah. And what else? What else was it? Uh Blake before that? A few episodes before that, we see him drop off some hookers from the plastic surgeon Pitler. He takes him from Pitler's clinic and delivers him to what's it called? Uh, to Osip Granov, the Russian. Yeah. The Russian who bought out Frank's club and the casino right from under him. So Blake's been trying to undermine him since the beginning. Yeah, and then we find out also that uh, the detectives, um, Chief Holloway. 
Holloway, yeah, the chief of the Burris Vigilance Department. were actually like former LAPD uh, police officers, as well as Dixon, who we didn't really mention as much in this podcast episode. But to give you some context, he's killed in that shootout. And he was a Vinci to police detective as well when we first saw him in the first episode. But he was a, he, we find out he's a corrupt cop with Burris and Holloway. And Casper, they all worked in the same precinct in the LAPD back in 92. And Casper, the guy who was killed, and that's another thing I want to talk about too. Vin, uh, Casper's death, the fact that he's been a dead body this whole season, is also indicative of Pizzolatto's David Lynch influence. Laura Palmer from Twin Peaks, she was nothing but a body and a name throughout the entire series. And gotcha. the entire series about who's who killed Laura Palmer? Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I think that's a, a great call out. I also think the fact that this season is so many twists and turns. It was. It was, yeah. I mean, I was in the same boat as everybody else when season two first aired and when it ended saying, what the hell is this? This, I mean, not even talking about that it wasn't as good as season one. That was a given going in. We knew that going in. But the plot... The characters, it felt all over the place after my on my first viewing of it. And it led me to be just as dismissive as a lot of people still are of, the, of that particular season. Then I viewed it again a week later when I had a day off, when it was all on, on demand. I'm like, let me just see how this goes together, put it together. And my conclusion is, season two is good in its own right. It's not confusing for me now anymore, but it's good in its own right. It stands alone. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's why I give, uh, you know, I tip my hat to Nick Pizzolatto for doing something different because I think it's hard to do something different and sometimes the hardcore fans don't like when you do something different it's like a band you know when you do an album that's just completely different than the stuff that you did or that your fans like it's yeah. gonna cause some havoc and sometimes the fans or critics can be right about the new direction as well too but and also as a testament to how much of a different direction Pizzolatto was going in for season two in episode three I think it was I think he, the director of that movie or whatever, looked just like uh, Carrie Joji Fukunaga, who's half white, half Asian in real life. Yeah, and and there was some rumor mill about that in some of the, the you know on the internet about he was taking uh, you know jabs yeah. at uh, you know at that Fukunaga, direct, yeah, that, yeah, which I thought was like it's like really, I'm like you know? I, I mean I I can see why people would think that, and given what we know about their relationship from season one. It was like, it's nothing really that's been confirmed. Yeah. And it's just, it's kind of like scuttlebutt, I think, like, mm -hmm. you know, it's just, it's like, why would you take a jab at a guy like that? I mean, he's a talent. I he's think talent. he was a huge part of the success of the, the first se season. And if it is a jab, then maybe he could take a joke too, if he comes back for season three. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I think they should, they should have him come back for season three and yeah, direct. Direct every episode. Yeah. Cause what's it called? They showed how that worked for season one and it got Emmys left and right and critical praise and people's and personally, he's the reason why I think season one still has replay value the way it does. Yeah. Yeah. I think season right just kind of uh, some season one, excuse me, uh, kind of stands season right. What am I? <laughs> I can't talk today. Um, it's probably cause I'm on vacation, but the, when you, it stands on its own, right. You know, right. So, so yeah. Um, so we go, I guess we go into the last episode of Mega Station. Lately was used twice in the episode. Once where um, in the montage where um, Vince Vaughn's character is preparing preparing for his assault, his gun assault on the McCandless Ranch and Osip. And when um, Velcoro, Colin's, Colin Farrell's character, is going towards that new train station to intercept uh, Lenny Osterman from killing 
from killing Bill Holloway, the yeah. chief of police. So we find out that through the twisted plot, the LAPD detectives, Dixon and, um, yeah. and Burris. And- Hol- Holloway... Holloway was their watch commander when they were LAPD for Dixon and Burris. And Casper, he worked at the same precinct as an accountant doing internal audits. And the reason for the robbery in 92 was because Casper, he was having an affair with uh, Margaret Osterman. Margaret and her husband, Lenny Sr., they owned Sable Fine Jewelers, a jewelry store in Los Angeles. Casper was having an affair with the wife for years, and that resulted in the girl, uh, Laura slash Erica. He, she's his illegitimate daughter, but of course that wasn't known until Holloway reveals it later in the final episode. But what's it called? He continued his affair with her even after he got her pregnant and the child was born. But when he got her pregnant again, Casper just wanted to break it off. But she was like, uh-uh, I know too much about you, dude. So then Casper was like, oh, you do? Okay, Holloway, Burris, Dixon, kill that bitch. So essentially they robbed the store. They robbed the store under the cover of the Rodney King L.A. riots back in April of 92. But the kids were inside the store, too, at the time. They saw the whole thing go down. They watched their parents get gunned down. And they just then they just robbed the store, took some jewels out of there. And they used the jewels. They gave the jewels to Casper, some of the jewels to him, cashed them for themselves as well, and used it to buy their way into the Vinci power structure. That's how Holloway became chief. Burris became his lieutenant. Casper became city manager. But Dixon, he burned through his cut of the money, which is why he was a regular detective the entire time. He was like a, a kind of a drunk loser. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. But he was still pretty smart, still keeping tabs on people. Yeah, I guess. And that explains how he found those diamonds, right? Like, he, or he was like looking for, for the diamonds. B- before yeah. the detectives even knew about them, yeah. Gotcha. He was thinking he could use them as leverage to get his get some money for himself. Yeah. Wow. This story isn't complicated, right? Like the plot. <laughs> But you explain, yeah. It's it's way more complicated than that too, especially with bad characters like the Chassanis, Pitler, and how they fit in. Yeah, exactly. And um, Omega Station. Do you think they named that because of the shootout in that that train station or Omega Station? Omega meaning gr- Greek for last, right? Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think so. <laughs> Alpha being beginning, Omega meaning last. Uh, yeah, maybe that was it. Yeah. Maybe that was why they named it. Um, but lately, uh, a or great last, or or last stop. Yeah, last stop. Mm-hmm. And um, I think this song lately has that electronic beat. You know, fits in really well with the that scene where they have the shootout. Bezzeridi saves, kind of pulls Vocoro, saves saves yeah. Vocoro. She, she, she shoots Burris. Yeah, yeah, and um, kind of the lyrics highlight that that kind of dark ending for everybody, right? There's no future. There's no past in the present. Nothing lasts lately. Something's missing from now on. Right. And they use the same lyrics when they're in Ecuador again, when Bezzaridis, Frank's wife and uh, nails Frank's main guy who his ride or die boy or whatever. It is yeah, to his, buy him. his most loyal, most loyal henchman. Yeah. Yeah. They call him nails. I think cause he got shot with a, a nail, nail gun, gun. Yeah. In the head. But he survived. Caused brain damage still, but not enough to keep him from doing his jobs or being a loyal dude. Yeah, that would be a kind of an interesting spinoff, right? Do a show about nails. <laughs> he was in Wolf of Wall Street, actually. Oh, yeah? Yeah, they, you see him briefly at the end when they're showing the montage of people looking at Jordan Belfort. You can see the actor that played nails is one of them, if you pause it just right. Yeah. No speaking role, but still. Yeah. So the ending, 
do we want to talk about spoilers or yes yes yeah it's, it's been out for four three years now so and most likely people have seen it so fuck it let's go to it yeah so uh we have the raid on that on that building with uh frank and and velcoro oh yeah mccandless's ranch yeah, yeah in northern california ranch. where they're doing uh what was going on there? The Catalyst Group, they were selling Osip Granov Casper's remaining shares in the land quarter for $12 million in cash, yeah. Yeah, so they wanted to get that cash. Well, Frank probably wanted to get that cash more than yeah. anybody because he had lost all that money. Uh-huh, yeah, I don't blame him. Yeah, so they go in and assault that place, shoot tear gas into the, into the house, and uh, there's a nice closing kind of revenge scene where Frank shoots Osip about 50 times. He was he shoots he shoots McCandless first. McCandless is crawling on the ground but looks up, looks at Frank, and then Frank just empties empties like a machine gun in his back. Yeah. And then Osip Osip was going around like Frank comes face to face, takes his mask off in that in that tear gas laden house. He's it's like, like, How did you not pass out after doing that? How did you not pass out? He's like, I was wrong. It is today. I was I was gonna kill you. Frank, you're like a son. Then Velcro empties a whole clip, a whole nine millimeter clip into him. Yeah, it was like, dude, why would you say that, right? Like, you're a son. It's like, dude, you fucked him over. You fucked him over, yeah. He said to sit down idly. And the phone call they had before that, too, he said, <laughs> he said, what's it called? We're going to settle up again, Cuba. We most certainly will. Yeah, good luck with that, you KGB kike motherfucker. <laughs> Gee, yeah, he just he just lays down the law on that guy. And and even Frank, lays, Frank is like a closet racist or, eth- or eth- ethnic or ethnically intolerant to some extent. All the all the remarks he's made to different people. Yeah, the Cisco com the Cisco boy comment. To yeah, the, to that guy, the the, the Mexican. Yeah. Can I yeah, help the, you, Cisco kid? And then he and then he's like, uh, he's in Chisani's office, and his uh, his assistant, I think, or is like, like this this way, sir. And he's you don't, like, don't direct me, K Song, motherfucker. K Song, motherfucker. I'm Chinese. Oh, we'll go stand in front of a fucking tank. And uh, for all you who don't know a lot about history, Quezon was a uh, marine base in Vietnam that was being assaulted. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and the U.S. actually ended up successfully defending that base and pushing the Vietnam back, uh, Vietnamese back, North Vietnamese. So. And, the, and the funny thing is, given the, the Asian character who's, just, who's Mayor Chisani's aide, who Frank laid that insult to, but he was able to smartly retort it, He's Asian, but his name is Ernest Bodine, which tells me that he, his character may have been adopted by an Anglo-American white family, maybe. <laughs> yeah, so he doesn't look mixed neither, so that's the only other assumption I can make. He was adopted, or it's a, or it's a fake name. Yeah, and he has that like accent change where he was talking, right? Like, isn't that uh... no, no? That's Tony. That's, that's, that's Tony Chisani's okay. son. Okay, sorry, I'm getting those two. I'm that's, getting them confused. Yeah, Tony Chisani. That that's that that's the son. Austin is the mayor. Right, right, yeah. It's like, oh my god, there's so many characters. <laughs> yeah, and Tony Chisani, the actor that plays in Vinci's Makado, he's he's Brazilian actually, and he was in season one of Power, played a big role in there too. Okay, he played a Latino, a Brooklyn Puerto Rican guns runner and whatnot, a gang member. Yeah, that, I, I got to check that sh- show out, man. But his accent changes in a uh, in True Detective. Yeah, yeah. It's like, <laughs> what's up with that? He's like, I threw I throw parties. And I then, throw like, parties. He writes a total pull. It's and total... then he was trying to do like another accent. I'm like, who is this guy? Like, what's his deal? Does he have like a mental problem or something? <laughs> like, different accents for different people. He says. Yeah. So yeah, we got through True Detective. Um, Great series. I yeah, love it. I'm really excited for season three. I think it's going to be pretty cool. I can't wait. They're doing all the cool shit in, in 2019. Not just for HBO, but for everywhere. Like Avengers Part Part Two, Infinity War Part Two comes out, and for HBO. Game of Thrones, they're going to do like six episodes that are like, are like 90 minutes each. Wow. And True Detective Season 3, I yeah. can't wait. I mean, a ton of a ton of great shows. I think 
a ton of great movies. And I think, uh, uh, if you want to, hopefully we'll go talk about some movies next in, oh. the, in the next uh, podcast episode. Yeah, we're definitely going to do that. All right, I man. Think we, I think we've talked TV shows, not not to death, but what's it called? A good transition to movies. That'd be nice next. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, thanks so much for doing this, man. Oh, no doubt. It. It's my pleasure, Andrew. All my right. pleasure. Take care. No doubt. This podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Acast, Google Music, Stitcher. So if you don't mind, please leave a review and give me some feedback. I'd really appreciate that. If you'd like to connect with me on social media, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I'm also on Untapped. My username is Brewtuned. This is Andrew signing off. Cheers.